So I might let people Google the word kangling to find out what it is, but uh, I will say holding it is quite extraordinary because it is quite a grisly thing to have in the studio. Um, and this is a flute you would describe this as. It's a traditionally a Tibetan flute. What it's made out of is very unique, as you can probably tell by looking at it. Um, I originally got this for Spinal in Killer Instinct. Um, Spinal is a, uh, a pirate, um, but he's a skeleton pirate, and that might give you some sort of indication as to what this is here. Um, and I recently used this on Doom as well because uh, I just thought that would be really cool in some of these like really ambient sections to have this uh, haunting, haunting instrument here. Um, I didn't want to put my mouth on it when I first got it, but, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, there it is. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was quite fun. So there's all sorts of like crazy little trinkets so you, and things all set up in the back So you've there. still never put your mouth on it and played it? No, I still put me, yeah, I've, I've put my mouth on it and played it a few times. Yeah. Okay. Could you play it for me? Um, I can try. Yes. I haven't, I don't know. Okay. We could try. There oh you are. man, that thing sounds as evil as it looks. <laughs> Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, Editor-in-Chief of the Unst.com and Bill's Manager. I'm also playing video games for the first time since 1996. I got my wife a Switch for her birthday so she could play Animal Crossing. And now I'm just playing the minigame card game from the Final Fantasy VIII Remake. And I haven't even played a single battle yet. What is wrong with me? Speaking of video games, Bill's guest this week is Mick Gordon. He won a ton of awards for his work on the Doom Eternal score, and has also worked on the Wolfenstein reboots, along with Killer Instinct. He's also worked with Bring Me the Horizon on the collab Parasite Eve, which came out last summer. And he's Australian, so the two of them go full Aussie mode in this chat. It's marvelously entertaining. Thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcatcher they use. It really helps people find the show. Please join the Patreon to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. We really appreciate everyone who supports the show that way. Information Technology is the latest release by Nervous Test Pilot, an IDM act out of the UK on Billegal Beats. Bill and his team find the best in IDM, Left Field Glitch, and Electronica and put it out on the label. One of the best ways to connect with them is to get on the Beleagle's Discord. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Bill has added a new micro-tutorial feed, and he's been dumping a ton of great content in there. Fans really dig the new HCA feed, so get in there and try it out if you haven't logged in in a while. All right, enjoy Bill's chat with Mick Gordon. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 Sick. Well, fuck yeah, awesome, man. man. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No worries, it. dude. Thank you so much for having me. How's things? All right? Yeah, pretty good. Um, just been uh, locked up in quarantine for the last, I don't know, year. <laughs> just writing a ton of music. <laughs> you too, huh? 
Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> How's so it you in... were telling me, you're Sorry, San Francisco, right? Did you say? Yeah. So I grew up in Sydney and then I moved to Melbourne for a while. And then I've uh, been living in America for about the past six years, but I spent sure. about four or five of those in Denver. And then the last year I've just been in uh, San Francisco. How do you like uh, San Francisco compared to Denver? Um, it's good. I mean, the weather's better, you know, like uh, Denver, obviously around this time of year is just like snowy and like frozen over. So, I mean, right now outside it's real sunny and nice here. So that's great. Yeah. 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 San Francisco's always got the most beautiful days, especially like February, March, April, you just get the most stunningly peaceful days. It's just such a beautiful city. Yeah. It's nice. I mean, it's, yeah, the Bay area is kind of crazy. It has these like microclimates. Um, so it's kind of weird, like all over the city is, uh, like different weather. Uh, and the, the city's not like big, it's, it's, you know, hmm. 20 kilometers across by like 20 kilometers high or something like it's pretty small, but you right. can go to the other side of the city and it'll be like pissing rain. And then like the other side is super nice. It's really weird. Whereabouts <clears> in San Francisco <throat> are you? I'm in a place called the Inner Sunset, which is okay. uh, basically right next to Golden Gate Park. Wow, is... that sounds awesome. That sounds really cool, actually. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. I'm a big fan cool, of it. Cool, man. You're still in Brisbane, yeah? Are you... Yes. Yeah, so I kind of move around a lot, actually. Um, I was in Melbourne for a little while uh, and then sort of more sort of regional Victoria. I remember <laughs> you'll probably like, you probably remember all these sort of issues that Australia had with um, NBN and internet and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. So yeah. um, for me to find a good solid NBN source, I actually had to move out to Ballarat for a while. Oh, wow. Um, so I lived out there for a while. And uh, so a lot of the recent projects from the last couple of years were done out there. And then recently I moved up to Brisbane. Uh, the weather's a lot nicer, which is cool. And uh, I was able to kind of, you know, put together a, a decent spot with really solid internet service and, and stuff like that. So that's what kind of drew me to here. Um, at the time, Ballarat's real estate was just exploding like crazy. You had houses in Ballarat that were like on a corner of a busy intersection that were going for like 750000 So oh. um, all of the, the, the mad sort of explosion from Melbourne had started to push out to the you know, towns outside of Melbourne that were on a train line. So people realized that they could buy a house out there and then jump on a train and then work in Melbourne, et cetera. So, mm. um, so yeah, we kind of pushed up here, but here I am talking about real estate and I realized that you live in like one of the most expensive cities in the world. <clears throat> yeah. My girlfriend and I actually just bought this place, uh, across the road from Golden Gate Park for uh, 700 grand and it's uh, 700,000 US. So that's wow. like, a million dollars Australian or something? Yeah, and it's depending, like a, yeah, probably about a million bucks. Holy hell. Well, congratulations yeah. on getting a place. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, it's like like a 700 square foot, like one bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, man. Oh, dude. Have you I been know, able to set up like a cool working environment for yourself? I mean, this is it. I'm in it. Like this is, uh, it's kind of like the main lounge room of the house. And then like what was, I guess, like supposed to be the lounge room, which is like right there is my, where my bed is, I guess you could call it a bedroom. <laughs> Dude, that's um, pure rock and roll. I lived in um, Santa Monica for a while. Oh, cool. And it was a similar setup there. So I lived on Main Street. Um, if anybody knows Santa Monica, I lived right on Main Street, right across the road from the Wildflower Pizza Parlor. And um, there's a little brick building across the street. And it stands out because it's one of the only brick buildings in Los Angeles, which, you know, Los Angeles isn't a great place to build brick buildings with, you know, seismic events and things as such. So mm -hmm. um, so it was one of the only ones there. I think it was the only brick building on Main Avenue. Um, and uh, up on the second floor there, I had a spot that's smaller than that. It was one room. I slept, worked, 
eight, did meetings, everything in, in one room. And, um, and that room was probably about the size of this couch that I'm talking to you on now. I had to like put my bed up against the, the wall um, and then pull my desk out to work. And then when I was finished working for the day, I had to pack up all that setup and then bring my mat- mattress down and sleep on the floor and all that sort of wonderful stuff. So rock and roll, dude. <laughs> yeah, my setup's not quite like that, but it's um definitely I've been spending a shit ton of time in this room. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think that would be the case either way, right? Like quarantine or like size of house or whatever. Like, I mean, I could have the biggest house ever and I'd probably still spend as much time as I do in this room in a similar size room anyway. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just like the nature of Yeah, it's of weird work. though too. I like, um, these days I like having a couple of different setups, right? So I've got my main kind of, you know, computer setup, but I've also got like a laptop setup and it's, it's actually really cool just to grab the laptop and a pair of headphones and try to work with those restrictions like a touchpad and, you know, two gig of RAM. Can you still do anything? Um, and, and it's cool because you just like, you realize like you, you go out to a park or something and you go, oh shit, I forgot my iLock. So now I haven't got my two and a half thousand plugins. <laughs> I'll use the native Ableton plugins. Let's see what I can do there. So it's mm. kind of like creative restrictions are forced from those sorts of things as well. Are you the same or do you have everything all in one, one spot? Um, so I try to keep everything in one spot because, uh, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like it working on like too many different setups, like does my head in trying to, I guess, like create, um, conforms when I, you know, get back to the studio, trying to like consolidate everything back into one project or whatever, it just does my head in. So I prefer to just do all the work in here. Uh, and if I am going on like a long trip or something for a few months, I'll, you know, clean up a bunch of projects to work on, on that trip that, uh, you know, I'll just like freeze everything and stuff. So they work on my laptop basically. Um, yeah, that, that's that's the sinking heart feeling when you open up a session and you've been out on the road <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. missing files. You're like, ah, oh, no, thanks. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, generally, I mean, I, I've been thinking about moving over to like one of those new M1 MacBooks. Actually, I've been on Windows for like the last 10 years or something, but I've been thinking about moving over to one of those because they're just so powerful at this point that I think um, it's conceivable that I could like just have one laptop, which could behave as both a travel computer and be still powerful enough to be a studio computer. Yeah. 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 That's a solid idea. I think I, um, I run one of each, so I have a a Mac setup and I have a window setup. Um, Hmm. I, um, there's a lot that I can do on a Mac that I can't do on a PC. So there's people that make some really, really cool plugins and things like that for, for Apple only. And, um, so getting access to that on the Mac setups are really, really quite cool. Mm, like um, the Michael Norris spectral plugins and yeah, stuff Yeah. Like well, man, I've, I've, gosh, I've been using those for years. They are yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. There's those as the sign vibes guys as well. Mm-hmm. They make some really cool things. Um, so yeah, but the, um, I find, I know there's a lot of debate with PC and Mac and all that sort of thing, but I find personally that, while the Mac might be a little bit more restrictive in what you can do in the back end and things like that, it's not a problem because when you want to work in Ableton, you open it up and you work in Ableton. There's no like restriction that you need to access. Whereas I find these days more and more, a lot of the stuff I have to do on a Windows PC comes with this like giant list of disclaimers, which is interesting because that used to be the Mac world. And so now, like, if I want to head up, like, hook up a UAD Thunderbolt thing to a PC, it's like, oh, you've got to make sure you've got a motherboard that supports Thunderbolt. You've got to make sure that you've got the correct drivers. There's a good chance that that's not going to work correctly anyway. So you've got to download some little hacky thing that sits in the background and turns on every time you switch the damn computer on. <laughs> um, the Windows system itself seems to be going more and more like a 
what I would like equate to, you know, like a, a cell phone operating system in a way with weird notifications and updates that all of a sudden enable all the trackers that just slow all the CPU shit down in the background. So it's like all this really weird stuff that sort of happens. Um, so I would probably would have gone to Mac a while ago, but for the big thing in, in my world, nobody makes games for, for Mac, right? right. So um, whenever I'm working on a game project, I absolutely need to be able to run builds, you know, log into whatever source control thing we're using, um, share all the same tools as everybody else on my PC setup. There's just no chance I'd be able to do that on a Mac setup. So mm. yeah, but that's interesting. You're thinking about switching. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think um, having access to both and running in both worlds is obviously the the best of both worlds, right? But um, yeah, I think the probably the reason why it's easy to get stuff running on Mac is because you have like fifty percent of computer users, like Apple users, who are basically running like these standardized setups. Um, you know, all their shit is basically the same, and then you have the other fifty percent of Windows users. Who are just running like completely modular setups it's like really hard i think to to be able to tell um yeah i think i think it's much easier to get everything working on probably max for software developers than it is for getting everything to work on windows yeah computers. yeah 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 that's cool man no i love glad to hear it i um i recently did this crazy deep dive on this question that's been posted around for quite a while of like do you remember a couple of years ago when people were like hmm there's all these like really great mixing engineers and they have all this awesome music that comes out and it sounds amazing, but I see they're all using, I don't know, Pro Tools or something. I'm sitting here using FL Studio and my stuff doesn't quite sound the same. It must be the door, right? It must be the digital <laughs> audio workstation, right? Yeah, the summing And so argument. there was this, like, there was this, you remember this whole debate about like summing engines, right? Yeah, yeah. And everybody was like, oh yeah, well the summing engine in FL Studio is not, you know, professional <laughs> like it is in Pro Tools. Pro Tools is a very professional summing engine. And then all of a sudden you had like hardware manufacturers that jumped on that and they're like, oh, what you actually need is a summing mixer. <laughs> I will sell you a black box for your 19 inch rack $4,000. It's got a few tubes and transformers and a bunch of <laughs> copper wire in it. You can plug eight channels into it and it'll spit out two, um, you know, and that'll, that'll get you there. And I was sitting in the background going, man, this is absolutely stupid, right? Any, anybody can test this. You just throw some stems into a digital, digital audio workstation from a session that you've saved out somewhere else. You do a null test, right? You flip the phase is, do you hear anything? No, you don't hear anything. Okay. So they're identical, right? And it turns <laughs> out that the way that computers calculate audio has, is the same across the board, right? It's just mm -hmm. the, the math that goes into it is the same. It's, yeah. That's PCM, right? Anyway, and then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? Maybe there is some, some truth to this. And I don't know if you've done these like crazy deep dives as well. I'm keen to hear about that. But I spent two days, dude, checking every single door that I had and a whole bunch of the functions that come with those doors and compared. And man, I was shocked at the difference between them. Have you done that deep dive? So are you saying what you did is you uh, had stems and you loaded stems into a bunch of DAWs and then just rendered them all out? Right. So that's the way you check the, check the summing engine, the summing. right? You take, say, yeah. five tracks and you put it in Ableton, you put it in Bigwig, you put it in Pro Tools, you put it in FL Studio, you put it in Cubase, you put it in Reaper, mm -hmm. and you hit render. And what comes out, right? What right. comes out at the end? And then those five, six, seven files or whatever... If you flip the phase when playing both of them together or two of them together, yeah, like do they, they cancel each other out? And if they cancel yeah, yeah. each other out, that means they're perfect. They're perfectly identical down to the sample, right? right. You cannot get more, more identical than that. 
-hmm. So we've all done that. Like I've done that test a while ago just to go like, no, no, all digital audio workstations do sound the same. But man, have you gone deeper than that? Um, so kind of. I mean, I've talked to programmers about this, uh, specifically um, a buddy of mine, Fine Cut Bodies, who works at uh, Roland. Uh, and he worked um, with Sony back in the day on like the old PlayStation stuff, I think. And uh, he basically told me the same thing. He's like, man, like this shit is not rocket science. He's like, when it comes to adding like two sounds together for a program, it's no more complicated than like one plus one equals two for a program. So he's like all this numbers sh shit and summing shit that people are talking about is just complete nonsense. But he said that the difference comes in the native tools that are available to you in each program. So it's kind of like people will be like, oh man, Ableton has such a sound to it. But it's like, yeah, because your like natural inclination when using Ableton is to use EQ8 and Redux and the Ableton reverb and like all this right. kind of stuff. And your mm -hmm. inclination when you're using Fruity Loops is to use, you know, the, the FL equalizer and the Fruity reverb and et cetera. So it's like the difference you're getting is not in like how the tracks are being summed together on the master. You're using different plugins, right? And they're coded, like the reverb is definitely coded differently and the, the EQ is definitely coded differently. So it's like, that's where the, the big differences are coming in. Yeah, it gets deeper than that. And it, it, I started looking to, I was just like really like mad one day and I'm like, you know what, I'll just check it for an hour and I'll see if this theory is correct or not. I'll just, just check it because the, I know sometimes I've, been, sometimes I've been screwing around. Yeah, that's always a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you're screwing around and you're like, I know this should sound right, but it, it kind of doesn't. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to kind of put that myth to, to bed. Like why, why is sometimes do these things that I'm working on when this giant session not sound the way I expect it to sound, right? So when I grab a 24 dB band pass and I automate it quite quickly, why does it not quite sound the same as I want it to, right? Mm. So check it out, right? The first test I did was I took white noise, the same identical white noise stereo file, and I put it into all the different digital audio workstations that I have. I have quite a few. I work with, with different ones all the time for various different reasons. But the first thing I did was check a, a loud to minus infinite, so complete like at zero down to, down to nothing, um, downward... Uh, like triangles, I don't know what you call it, like saw wave, like, like automation. Just a saw, like a saw down. Saw down, right, saw down right. automation. Using the automation tools that were in every single digital audio workstation's audio track, and I was automating the output volume. So it's just a volume on all tracks. So this isn't any plugins. This is mm. um, just automating the volume of each track in each digital audio workstation with a downward, um, downward triangle, right? Mm -hmm. And... I bounced it all out and dude, I was shocked at how different they all were. Hmm. Now automating downward triangle things is something I might do quite often. I might grab like a kick drum or a snare drum and the tail's a bit too long. So I'll just jump in with the automation lane and I'll start drawing triangles on each hit. And I was like, oh yeah, cool. That sounds a bit punchier, right? Right. But turns out what happens is that each one is a little bit different. Each door has interpolated smoothing on the automation. Like different power curves and shit like that? Different power curves. So even though you're looking at an absolutely perfect triangle that you just spent a while draw, I mean, drawing or whatever. Yeah, it's just a visual abstraction of what's going on in the background. It's just a visual yeah. abstraction of what's actually happening, right? Mm -hmm. So I started looking into this and yeah, it turns out that each door has um, a different way that it smooths the automation that you're working with. Now, some doors will allow you to alter that smoothing, some don't. And so instantly I was like, oh, this is probably why some doors sound punchier than others. 
Because mm. if I'm drawing triangles in FL Studio, those triangles sound very different to triangles in Ableton, for example. And then I was like, so why is this happening? And I started looking into it. We can go like proper nerd detail on it. But the first thing, the most important thing was that I was like, I checked it in an hour and it was all different, right? Every single door was different. And I went, oh shit, I've just uncovered a fucking rabbit hole. Here we go, right? <laughs> and um, so first I checked that. Then I started reading around to like buffer sizes and stuff. You know, sometimes if you're like me, you've got your buffer set at like 256, maybe 512, right? And then right. You, you start building your session and your session gets crazy and it starts clicking and popping and you start wanting to like, you know, throw something in the wall because it's driving you crazy. And you go, oh, I know how to fix this. I'll just up my buffer size. Right. Well, guess what? When you do that, that also can change the smoothing in the door that you're working with. So even though you rendered out those triangles in Cubase at 512, if you render them out at 32, it's going to sound different. It's extraordinary, right? It's weird that it does that offline. Like you would think once you start to render stuff offline, it has some sort of like offline default setting that isn't like related to real-time playback with buffer size. Mm. It's super, super weird. So, um, man, that was a rabbit hole. And I spent basically two days going through every door and everything. And so what I learned was that no door is perfect. Some are brilliant at automation, like doing things that are really, really snappy and really clicky and stuff like that, which, you know, accurate is kind of what I'm, what I'm looking for. Others are terrible at it. Some are, some are shocking, man. Some had like, when you draw like a square, as in like an instant cutoff, you know, like the end of the track and you hit the, the final beat and you just want it to, to bang down to nothing, like straight away. Well, Pro Tools would be like, yeah, sure, bro. You want to do that? I'll do that for you. No problem. But you throw that into like Studio One and stuff, and it can give you like 300 milliseconds um, like, like curve out. Wow. And so you think you've got a, got a perfect cut there, but it's actually giving you a curve. And so um, looking they... into it further, man, I, I, I just went crazy. And it's weird. It's a really deep, 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 deep rabbit hole because even when you start looking at, say, buffer settings, buffer sizes and stuff, well, the buffer setting is basically the package of information that's being processed by the CPU, right? So it packages mm -hmm. up a bunch of information, sends it to the CPU, gets processed, gets sent out to the speakers as, as sound, right? That's a, that's a kind of rough rudimentary way of doing it. And so if there's automation data or, or information happening in the door in between those buffers, it gets smoothed, it gets interpolated. Basically, the computer says, well, at, uh, a few microseconds ago, you were at this point, and a microseconds now, you're at this point, so I'm just going to interpolate those two things. And so if something else happens else within that block of time, it, it gets kind of ignored by it, by the buffer setting. Or just setting. like quantized up to the next thing or something. In the yeah, like yeah, it's, it's kind of interpolated, you'd say. Mm, interpolation, right, right. yeah. So maybe and, the reason um, Studio One and and these kind of DAWs are doing this is basically just so they don't get as much like tech emails of people being like, "Hey, why do I get this click?" You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Whereas like in Pro maybe. Tools, you know, the people who are doing the thing are like, "Of course it's going to click. You're turning it off like straight yep. away. You doing yep. this." <laughs> so man, that was that was just with the tools that were inside the door itself. Um, when I dived into actual plugins, I, it was like the, the deep, dark depths of the most scary looking <laughs> rabbit hole that you've ever seen, because it turns out that each plugin manufacturer has a different policy on the way they treat that stuff as well. Yep. So automating, say, a fab filter plugin in one door will sound different if you automate that same fab filter plugin in another door. But if you automate, if you're like, oh man, I don't have that fab filter plugin, I might grab EQ8, for example, EQ8 will automate differently um, in Ableton um, to what you might expect you would be able to get with FabFilter, for example, just pulling that out as an example. Mm -hmm. But it was just crazy, man. So, um, so yes, it turns out that doors do sound the same. 
Um, other things I found was that there can be differences between VST 2.4 or whatever and VST 3. Um, I found differences with that within Cubase, which I thought was really surprising being that Steinberg are the ones who own the VST. Right, <laughs> um, like they make the SDK and everything. Back in, yeah, that's kind yeah. of their thing, right? So you'd think it'd be consistent, but no, it's all over the place. Um, and uh, what else did I find? Panlore is also different. So Panlore... So yeah, you can change that in Fruity, but you can't change it in like any other DAW as far yeah, as Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can change it in a couple of things. You can even change it in like Adobe Audition, which is like really strange. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but some like it just won't let you change it. And some add like four, five, six decibels to the signal when you're panning it to the left. So if you have a, mm. if you have a strong mono signal and you pan it to the left, all of a sudden you'll get a, like a four, five, six decibel boost in that one side. Mm. Then if you pull it back to center, it's super strange, man. Yeah. So, so one, one thing I think is possible though, is like um, with the automation, like smoothing and all of that stuff, I think um, sometimes it is possible to like say you do a saw down automation in Ableton and Fruity, like it's probably possible to match them to the point that they would phase out, but it's just not obvious to you to like make those shapes because it just the program doesn't present itself in such a way that it would be obvious for you to do such a thing. And I something I think about a lot is like the way that software developers make the UX experience um, for the way that the, the DAW works does have a like a pretty big impact on the type of sounding stuff that comes out of it. So I think in that way, this is maybe where people get caught up on like DAW sounding quite different because they're like, well, like really what they're trying to say is I was driven to do X, Y, Z in this DAW, uh, which made it sound very different to the things that I was driven to do in this DAW, you know, and it's kind of the same thing exists with like modular synthesis versus um, like uh, software synthesis because in a, in a modular synth, you're like, oh yeah, fucking I'll take the output of that oscillator and plug it back into the input of itself. And it's like, oh shit, it sounds like noisier all of a sudden. But then it's like <laughs> when you're messing around with software synthesis, you're just not driven to do that because it's not obvious to do in a software synth, right? And therefore everyone's like, well, hardware sounds so much cooler, but it's like, well, it just like, you just won't, you could do the same in software really. Like the fact you can record hardware into software and it can exist and you can listen to it back in ones and zeros means that it can exist in a digital domain, meaning it can be created in a digital domain too. Yeah. Um, no, so that's true. It, and I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I had two things just as you were saying there that, that I wanted to just tap on with that because I'm so glad you mentioned that. For number one, that to summarize, I think there and bring it back to my one of my points was that you mentioned that you always got to be listening not looking, mm -hmm. right? So you've got to be working with your ears, not with your eyes. So just because the door is telling you it's doing something, it may not be. It may be doing something completely different. So you have to listen to it. So even if you are matching it by ear and it looks crazy, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's, right. it's how it sounds. <laughs> so you really have to have to listen to it. Yeah. The other thing that I, I love that you mentioned there was that it also taps onto what I think is the most important thing. And it's something that we've really pushed by the wayside, I think, with modern tools is that techniques are always going to be more important than the tools themselves. So the technique of taking an oscillator and plugging it back into the self and all it sounds cool all of a sudden, that's a technique there, right? It's something that you went, oh, I wonder what happens if I do this. Okay, now I understand why the oscillator is now oscillating itself. Okay, I understand what that's doing. Now maybe that might lead me to understand sync oscillator. That might be able to understand, I don't know, pulse wave or whatever it is. But um, if you're just following, as you said, what the computer is kind of leading you to do, you're following the tool, not instructing it in a technique that you're trying to achieve you know yeah totally yeah i mean i think um in some way we're all just like products of developers right 
because and and developers are all just products of the coding frameworks that they're given to it's like <laughs> we're all just sort of um like very it, it's really hard i think to be given a framework in which to work with and then be like oh i'm gonna do something completely that this framework is not like kind of leading me towards doing already um, and I think that exists all the way back to the coding frameworks, but especially in DAWs, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's so obvious to do certain things in Ableton that is not that obvious to do in Fruity and vice versa. I think and, that's why I like working with so many different doors is because I naturally just do things that are so different in Ableton than I would in FL Studio. Um, that being said, I do stuff in FL Studio that I just, I wouldn't like especially with automation clips and things like that, like wouldn't even be possible in Ableton. So I like having all these tools so I can just kind of open things up and, and work with it as I go. Um, right, I mean, same been... with... Sorry, go on. Oh, no, sorry, I cut you off. What did you say? Oh, I was going to say, it's like the same even just with using different synths, right? Like if I use Serum, it's like not obvious to me that I should put like 20 or 30 flanges on something. Whereas when I use Faceplant, it's like, because you can just add as many as you want. Like, that's like the first thing I think to do, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm always blown away with like AU5 and his videos and stuff like that. Because he's like, hey, you can import a like a C1 oscillator into the noise oscillator. And then you can use that to like create audio rate modulation on something. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, how did you even think to do that? <laughs> yeah, I know, man. That guy's crazy. He's nuts. Mm. Yeah, he's um, actually probably, I, so I wrote a whole album with him in the studio. And he's, yeah, probably one of the most like uh technically skilled production uh, producers i've ever been in the studio with i think yeah yeah i love that just as you, it's um but as the saying just coming back like whenever i find one of his videos and he talks about like some of the the crazy stuff you can do in serum it's like man this this guy's really thinking about it is in terms of trying to achieve a technique with the tool that's in front of him not being dictated by what's in front of him totally yeah yeah and i guess it goes back to again what you were saying before about how um, the user interface experience kind of leads you in a certain direction that um, might be leading other people in that same direction at the same time. And right. it's kind of inevitable then if you start doing exactly the same thing as somebody else, you're going to end up in a very, very similar place. Right, and which he, will uh, start these arguments like, oh, this door sounds this way. Like that <laughs> sounds very Ableton-y and that sounds very fruity loopsy, right? It's like, Maybe that's it. Maybe that's where it all kind of comes from, I guess. It's interesting, isn't it? Like... I've been doing these deep dives again on, um, you know, how a lot of the cool electronic music that I grew up with and that I loved when I was younger, sort of 80s, 90s stuff was actually done, right? Because when I was a kid, it sounded like the future. When I was a kid, it just sounded like something that was coming from another another universe, at a, a, a different planet or something, right? Listening to Jungle, listening to DMB, even listening to like crazy techno stuff or whatever, it sounded like that stuff was coming from another planet. And it's weird when you start deep diving into the tools that they were using, the Akai samplers or the the MPC things that they were using or uh, trackers that they were writing this stuff in mm. or the, I don't know, even down to like how certain synths you could trigger chords from a single key, for example, and all mm. of a sudden that's where rave stabs came from. Right, right? like planing. <laughs> yeah, right. And looking into the drum and bass stuff with the um, uh, the EMU uh, samplers and the way that you could, you know, double up a sound in there and overdrive it internally and then slightly detune it. And if you did that with an 808, all of a sudden you got like equivalent of kind of a respace really. And then they had like, um, a certain type of unison and things in there that sounded a particular way. And, um, Z plane filters, which they, which are basically morphing filters, but they called them Z plane filters at the time. 
And just the way all that stuff sounds, and it's interesting when, when anybody plays with that box and starts playing with similar sounds, you end up with the same sort of thing. So it was almost like that set of tools that they had there dictated that genre almost as much as, I know this might be controversial, but almost as much as the arm and break sped up, right? It was almost mm. the tools that they were using allowed them to kind of go that way as well. Yeah, I mean, like certain pieces of hardware birth entire genres, right? Like the... um the tb303 like because of that that thing's creation we got acid and like oh yeah um, i'm glad you went to that example and not the 808 because like <laughs> right yeah i mean because of that we got like, hip-hop detroit yeah. techno trap etc yeah yeah but same again like, one of my um one of the things i really love to do is like to find these old magazine interviews with um old school folks and every now and then they drop some knowledge bombs in these um interviews and you'd be like oh man that's how that was done that was interesting <laughs> i was reading um uh, some Dr. Dre stuff recently and them talking about him getting these massive subs underneath kick drums. And I always thought it was 808s and things, but this interview that I read said it wasn't. Basically with the the desk that they were using, there was a test tone that you could fire up with the desk, right? So test tone, so you could send it through channels, you could send it through outboard or whatever it was to test that, that things were working. And that test tone, I can't remember what the interview said, but the, the test tone was either 30 or 40 hertz. That was it. It was like a really low sub thing. Hmm. And he worked out that he could trigger, so he could run that up on a track and then put a gate on it that's off, right? And then sidechain that gate from the kick drum. So every time the kick drum played, you'd get this short burst of 30 to 40 hertz or whatever it was. And it's like, oh man, that's where that came from. <laughs> Again, that was kind of... It was, it was techniques that he was doing there, not the tools. The tools said that it was, hey, this is a test tone, but he went, oh, man, I can apply a technique to this and get a certain outcome, you know? Mm. Yeah, but, I mean, almost in a way it's like when given a tool that has some weird feature in it like that, like most creative people will always be like, how can I use this to my advantage anyway, right? Or like how can I you know, think about this in some sort of different way? So still to some degree it's like the, the gear like kind of burst that thing in some yeah. weird way. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, things like just weren't even possible. Like what we can do now is just not even, wouldn't have even been possible, say like five, six years ago even. And, um, you know, going back 10, 15 years ago and then like 30, 40 years ago, it's like laughable. It's laughable that I can have a, a UA1176 on 60 channels now if I, if I want to, <laughs> right? That's like, you know, about 70 billion million dollars worth of compressors that I can have in my door. And, and you know, and my mix still sucks. So, <laughs> right. Um, but it's, it's interesting that I think with, um, within terms of, you know, these days where any, any possibility is right in front of you. So I go to my computer and I can have as many number of 1176s as I want. So the amount of possibilities in front of me are endless. So then what becomes important is the the artist using those tools, right? And how the artists use those tools to express some sort of unique identity or message or feeling or vibe or whatever it is. Because we can all confidently claim now that these days we are working with exactly the same tools. By and large, a couple of like super nerdy door things that we were talking about before, whatever. Mm. But I can guarantee like my plugin folder probably looks very much like your plugin folder and it probably looks the same as, you know, noisiest plugin folder, right? Whatever. But it's how we each approach it with the, the taste and past experiences and things that we want to get across, the message that we want to say. That's the stuff that's important, right? 
Yeah, it's kind of the same with like, you know, classical music and rock and roll and all that shit. It's like everyone had access to the same Fender Stratocaster and Mesa Boogie amps and like, you know, everyone, mm -hmm. everyone had access to the same like, you know, pianos back in the day and org like pipe organs in churches and shit like that. So it all just came about like, you know, who can take these set of notes and like do the most crazy shit with them or the most interesting stuff with them i think it's just kind of that these days but on steroids because like we just have so much crazy technology available to us so it's like now it's not just like who can take these you know 100 notes of a pipe organ and make the next church piece with it it's like who can take just like literally everything on the internet and make literally anything with it in a dw um and then yeah, on top of that it it's too. like and here's fucking max for life build your own programs if you want yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just endless the possibilities are absolutely endless so I think I think it's more important than ever as an artist to to cultivate your own taste. You know, <clears throat> yeah. And really, yeah, I think so really too. work. Mm. Yeah, quite because often I'll listen to something like um uh like I don't know, G Jones is a good example of this, or Tipper is a good example of this. And it's like I'll listen to it and I'll be like, I know exactly where all these sounds come from and I've heard them all before. And I just never thought to like use them in such a simple, like efficient uh like obvious way and it's whenever i hear these things i'm like fucking like obviously this was gonna happen like this is of course this thing exists now and uh yeah i mean it's just there's something to be said for um like application of something you know like a good example of this is um you know like uh i mean the like going back to the 303 example it's like that was originally invented for bass player replacement you know so bands could like have this thing in right their fucking you know band uh, but then electronic musicians all got their hands on it and applied it in this completely different way and it became this like whole new genre i think um yeah there's some some uh there's something cool about being able to take uh something that that just seems simple and designed to be used for like one thing and then repurposing it for something else and making something really interesting and cool out of it like i mean you know you kind of did that with adding chainsaws and guitars together and to make some new type of guitar sound or whatever yeah, yeah. well i mean you know that's the thing it's like i think what's um what's what's cool about kind of what you mentioned there is that um the the other side of of being an artist when you 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 pour your heart and soul into something and then you release it out to the world whether it's a song or a tweet or a um, synthesizer whatever it is a piece of hardware a piece of equipment whatever um, you lose control of it you relinquish control of it right so even though yes I'm making the, I'm sitting at Roland and I'm making my three or three or whatever and uh, and, uh, and I'm intending this to be a replacement for bass players and that's how we're going to market this thing but then the market adopts it and turns it into something completely else it's unintentional right and so you you kind of lose control over it a little bit you know when you when you send this stuff out there and it's fascinating watching that happen with songs for example especially these days like you know, if, if you luck out and, and a song becomes a meme or whatever and gets thrown on every, you know, 16-year-old's TikTok video, it's like, wow, this is, this is, this is great, you know. But the, the misinformation I think you can garner from that is that you intended that to happen or that you were the genius behind that, right? Whereas in reality, you had no control over that whatsoever. So what's the important thing there? Well, I think for me personally, the important thing is to acknowledge that the audience is as much of an artist in the creation of that work as you, you know what I mean? If, if you make it and nobody does anything with it, nobody takes it anywhere, it's, it's kind of nothing. It's, just, it's an expression that you had on a particular day. 
But if somebody else takes that and uses it to express themselves and things as such, that's what gives these things life, you know? It sounds a lot like that old Japanese koan, which is like uh, if a tree falls in the wood and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Right, sure. Yeah, sure. What's the answer to that question? Ah, there you go. It's philosophical, isn't it? I guess. (laughs) Speaking of philosophical and like (laughs) things that are... Sorry, go we've on. we've seen that a lot, haven't we? We've seen it. I mean, um, what was another example? Like, there was it was a TikTok or something um, video recently of the guy on the skateboard with like the 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 ocean spray, like cranberry juice, cruising around on his um, skateboard, right? And I can't remember what song he had. It was a was it a Crosby, Spills and Nash track or something like that? Um, I don't know. It was some some uh, like seventies ish. I'm gonna say. Don't quote me on it. I'm kind of pulling out of the air there. But some old track, and all of a sudden it gave that song like a huge boost in sales and in streams and in listens and then everybody else started like you know using it to kind of respond to that on tiktok and things like that now the the folks behind that music didn't intend for that to happen there wasn't a marketing department that sat down with them and say okay how do we engineer this success you know how do we make this happen there wasn't a producer that said get this done on friday we need it out by monday (laughs) because you know we need it to be a success on tiktok by tuesday that didn't happen right it's it's the kind of people that adopt these things um and I guess we're all just riffing on each other, right? We're all just kind of jamming in that one big sense, right? Yeah. So are you saying uh, like a song's value comes from like how many people enjoy it and listen to it? or? Yeah, I guess. But even it's more beyond that. It's like what those people might take that song and then, you know, if that song all of a sudden becomes the graduation song for college that year, it's going to become huge. If that song gets used in a political rally by some dodgy politician, it's going to have a different reaction. If that song um, gets thrown into a viral TikTok video, it's going to have a different boost. You know what I mean? But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the artist behind all that never had that intention. They're just kind of getting a message across that they wanted to get across on that day or whatever it was. But it's the audience that adopts it and then does something with it. And then that kind of gives it extra life and extra legs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're saying, um, society as a whole sort of like repurposes music for their own, uh, purposes and gives songs like a different unintended meaning sometimes. Uh, yeah like that. that but it's not just songs too as we're saying like with the 303 before that's kind of taken and adopted and manipulated and things as such and we've seen that a lot with different tools i love it whenever there's like some i don't know what's an example like um like some cool crazy ai technology that creates faces or whatever and then somebody always takes that technology and does the most craziest things with it that nobody would have ever intended and i love sometimes that's even happened to a state where like the the original creators of that tool whatever it is have to come out and like take it down and remove it because it gets so crazy so i don't know it's uh the audience is as much part of the process as you the artist i think is what i'm trying to get across Mm, yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I always, I've thought about this a little bit. Um, and I think what I've come to the conclusion of, like just from my perspective of writing music, is I'm not a strong enough person to write music that nobody likes, but I'm also not so needy that I have to write music that only people like, uh, like for that purpose only, you know, like shit, like it has to be this balance between uh, stuff that I enjoy making, but also stuff that I know people are going to accept as, uh, you know, reasonable music to listen to and not like crazy noise shit that most people are going to listen to and be like, turn that shit off. Interesting. Um, would you say then that, well, it's interesting that because even I think if you, like I'd say there, um, I don't mean to take your words and kind of, kind of give them back to you in a way, but, um, 
if we took that as say your artist statement, not not that I think that is like to whittle your you as an artist down to such a statement like that, but if we just for example took that as a statement, right? Um, that statement in itself, because you stand for that, becomes something that all of a sudden other people will identify with. They will say, I listen to this person's music because they make it listenable, but a little bit like interesting and, and obscure that it's not so crazy commercial because they're trying to, you know, appease a fan base or whatever. Right, like to the, place it, the place it comes from, like cultivates a certain type of listener. Mm, I think so. I think even if you are stronger with a message there, there were people that will identify with it and will become fans of your work and they'll be interested in what you do and the stuff that you release because of that, because you actually stand for something. I think it's the ones that sort of don't really stand for anything in particular. That's the ones that I think kind of have trouble resonating with any audience because an audience just sits there and absorbs the, the stuff that's coming at them and says, well, what is this? I need to understand it in some way. And if there's a clear identifiable message with it, whether it's a strong message politically, whether it's a simple message about, you know, finishing work on Friday, whether it's a, a or an artist statement about, you know, this is the music that I want to make for these reasons. Um, that all of a sudden gives people a platform to accept the, the artwork that you're putting in front of them. And uh, from that, I think you can, if it's strong enough, we'll build an audience. I think that's kind of how that happens. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every time I meet um, like a Merzbo fan or a you know Justice Yeldum fan or something like that, they're always like uh, like pretty anarchistic, you know, like they're always <laughs> they're always like fuck the system, <laughs> and they're just like, <laughs> you know, like noise music fans, you know, they're always like on the sort of you know pro squatters rights living in warehouses <laughs> like, I mean, at least all the noise fans I've met. Sorry sure. if you're a noise fan out there who's not this way, but. No, I think so. I think that's really super and I, true. And I think it's like what you're saying is is um, like relevant here because like probably those noise artists who are making the music are probably the same way, right? They're like, you know, we don't have to like abide by the rules. Like, fuck this framework. Like, noise is music too. And then they just make this crazy shit and then attract these like same type of people. Right, but that's it, isn't it? That's that's punk right there. That's it. That's That's literally using the artistic medium to express the same feeling that people are feeling out there somewhere. So, you know, if you're a painter, you're going to be splatting paint everywhere and, and doing something that's, I don't know, whatever, controversial and stuff like that, because that's the message that you're trying to get across. That's, that's the true essence of the artist, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting. Do, do you listen to, to music that, um, how do I say this? So you were talking about, so how you described your music there before, you said something that, again, I'm going to make a poor attempt at sort of whittling down, but you, you make it something that you feel personally strong about it. Um, it's, it's technically and interestingly sonically, but it's also at a framework that is acceptable to the most people. So it's four, four, and you know, it's, it's, um, it, it belongs to a, probably a central key, something like that. Right. I, yeah. I'm, if I'm paraphrasing too crazy, just, you know, reach through the phone and punch me. Um, uh, no, no, no. Ba basically it's like, I, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're probably the same way and I'm sure most artists are, it's like, you don't want to like, you don't sit in the studio making things. I'm sure to assent, to be like this is intentionally tricky to listen to and challenging and uh very not satisfying right like uh, most people i think who make music are like this is going to be satisfying for a few people to listen to and i think people will like this hmm. uh i think that's like a lot of artists in the studio's mindset so i'm just saying like that's kind of where i am with writing it's like i don't, yeah, yeah. I, don't I don't sit there going like i don't need anybody to like this and i'm going to make the most crazy challenging shit it's it's always more along the lines of i'm gonna make 
I'm making something that I find satisfying, but something that I also think an audience will find satisfying as sure. well. Sure. Yeah, no, of course. So then would you, so my question to you would be, do you listen to music that represents that same sort of core set of ideas and values then? Or do you find yourself going to more extremes or kind of less extremes? I think it depends on my mood, right? Like if I'm somewhere in a room, uh, like with a set of friends or something when that happened, um, where I'd be like, <laughs> uh, where, you know, we're on like some, have you heard this YouTube binge together or something? And, you know, they're pulling up some crazy jazz shit and, you know, I'll be like, oh, but then have you heard this Jacob Collier tune? And like, I'll start pulling up crazier shit and like, we'll just go down this hole of like crazy shit. Right. Um, whereas if I'm just like sitting around, you know, drinking coffee in the morning and chilling, I'll probably be listening to like some ambient Spotify playlist or something. It really depends. I think on the time of day and all that. I'm not like one of those people who like listens to Psytrance 24 hours a day or something like that, like in the car, at home, going to sleep, doesn't matter, Psytrance all day, every day. <laughs> right, eating a bowl of cereal. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I'd love to tap into that there because um, you're kind of inadvertently saying there that you yourself are kind of cultivating your own taste, which is like what I kind of was was talking about before. These days when you've got any endless amount of possibilities in front of you, it's more important to c- cultivate your own taste because you're going to be faced with numerous amount of decisions whenever you're making something and you need to wade through those decisions with some level of confidence based on your, your feeling. So um, I like this, I don't like that. I like this more, I don't like that. When I twist this knob, it sounds cool. When I twist that knob, it sounds worse, right? Do you think and, the and artistic process oh, though, do you, do you think the artistic process is saying, I like this, I like this, or is it saying no to a bunch of shit that you don't like actually? Yeah. I think so. Here's an interesting one, right? I think there's so much truth in that. And I think it's a fascinating thing that as musicians, I think it's probably musicians, maybe sports people, I don't know off the top of my head that have this sort of thing. And it's this, this idea that while you're learning, all you do is suck, right? You <laughs> just suck. When you pick up a guitar for the first time, you suck. When you try to mix a track for the first time, it sucks, right? When you try to write a piece of music for the first, second, third, fourth, billionth time, it sucks, right? And you're just constantly faced with your own inability to do what you're actually trying to do. Um, So yes, I think you are faced with this idea of saying no to a lot of things, but there's this certain sense of perseverance that comes from that as well. You're not the type of person that says, no, okay, I'm going to give up. You're like, no, and next, no, next, no, next. So I guess, yes, you're right. Over a pattern of time, that is going to be uh, a life of saying no to a lot of things. Is that something you've kind of thought about there? That's interesting. Yeah. So when I'm making a track, like, um, and I, I kind of notice this, like at every step along the way, like when I open up a synth and I like add an oscillator and add a filter and start tweaking the filter, I, instead of like getting to the point where I feel like, uh, yes, that's what I want. I feel like I'm instead going like, no, 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 no. You know, like until I get to the point where it's like good. And then it's like the same with anything. Like when I'm going through a sample folder, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I'm basically just always saying no to tons of shit. And I feel like that's almost my whole creative process is it's just like this big streamlined <laughs> thing of like all these no's like flowing off the edge in like a wake and like this. Right. Creative. 
But even that, I'd say that's curation, right? You're, curia- you're curating those filter settings. You're curating those kick drums or those samples or whatever it is. You're curating it to try to find something that represents what you're actually trying to get across. So yes, it is saying no, but you're kind of, as I say, curating the information that's coming at you and finding the things that you like, ah, oh, that's the one or that's the thing or maybe that'll work, right? Um, so I don't know if it's so much like a, a no all the time. I guess it is. Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd say it is, yeah. Um, I, I, I do think it's a little bit, um, I don't know. That's such an interesting concept. I've never kind of really thought about it like that. The way I kind of think about it is everything that I'm doing when I'm working on something is a set of U curves, right? It's a shape like U curve. So it's not a, a linear curve or a, or a log, log, logarithmic curve. It's a U curve. And what I mean by that is that a knob is a really good way to describe it. Actually, there's like that perfect setting somewhere between zero and hundred on that knob. And once you find it, you're like, there it is. That's the spot that it needs to be. If you go more than that, it's less. If you go less than that, it's also less as in a U curve. It's not like you hit that point that sounds really good at 3.33 or whatever. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. If I take it to four, it'll sound even better. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a series of U curves. You know what I mean? So it's almost like you're honing in on what you're trying to find. It's not so much rejection. It's more just sort of navigating your way through the dark woods to find what you're looking for. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way as well. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about like your influences because I know like you're obviously um, influenced by metal stuff. And uh, I was like actually a big fan of the Brisbane metal scene back in the day. Um, Specifically two bands I really liked there uh, were Parkway Drive and another band called Sunk Lotto. Do you know Mm. these two bands? Oh yeah, man. Of course. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I've like chatted to anybody else on this podcast who's probably known either of those bands. Oh. <laughs> I mean, at least oh, not Sunk like... right? Cause Sunk like broke up in what, 2005 or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. That's, I couldn't remember, but I mean, you're just describing like Saturday morning recovery on TV to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, you totally. know, you're Dylan recovery, right? Come on, man. You must've done that. Uh, I know. I don't, I never remember that, but I'm, I definitely <laughs> used to watch rage all the time. Yeah, this is another yeah. thing that like um, people in America just don't understand. I'm like, oh, there's this thing in Australia. It was called Rage. It was on like every Friday night, and I'd sit around and smoke weed and listen to yeah. it. It was just like, right. but but it, on Friday night, as in started at one a.m. and finished at six a.m. Right? right? Yeah, exactly. And, so and, and it was always like run by you know someone from a band, like the yeah. guys from Kai. Dude, the guest programming. Yeah, the guest programming sections on Rage. I used to find so much awesome music. I remember there'd be. Like, I mean, they'd have Tool on or they'd have, like, you know, Slipknot on or whatever it might have been, and they'd be like, here's six hours of the music I really love. Look at these videos you've never seen before. Look at this thing that's, <laughs> like, really going to freak you out at 2.30 in the morning. And, like, um, you know, that that was cool. I know I, I, trying to explain to somebody else, they're like, oh, so it's, like, MTV? And you're like, no, 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 no. Not really, <laughs> yeah. Not. Yeah, definitely not. Um, but, yeah, I remember finding a lot. Of, I remember... Um, really sort of hanging about to find out like what, you know, top 50 was and things like that too, even at that age and before I was kind of into music just because it was kind of interesting, um, you know, how tastes would change and stuff. And like the number one song from one year would, would be so different to like the number one song from the previous year. And uh, music itself, you start to realize is such a, such a varied thing, you know, because if music was like a re- repeatable art form or a repeatable technique, the one song would be the popular song all the time, but it's not. People's tastes always constantly change. And so I remember even like loving that, just watching the charts for a few hours just to see what the number one song would be. Yeah. Um, 
I feel like these old school things like this were sort of like the original Spotify playlists or something. <laughs> it's kind of like this curated, uh, like this person curating this like set of music or whatever. But it was just sort of like this. Uh, I guess you could always go on the internet, right, and check the range yeah. playlists after. But it was almost like this transient thing. It was like the playlist like gets played through once, and then it's like it's gone almost. Yeah, yeah, and you'd have to ask people about it on Monday, and then you know look forward to it again <laughs> on Saturday. And yeah, you wouldn't hear that song again. Probably you wouldn't hear it unless you went and bought the CD or something like that. You wouldn't hear about it. Until... Dude, remember having to buy CDs for one song? Yes. Like you, yes. I, I remember I, I bought an Offspring CD once just for like Pretty Fly for a white guy. Oh, I'm sure. wow. <laughs> I don't know if I'd admit that publicly, dude. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I was like 10 no, years No, man. Old. We Actually, you know, I think, no, I think I had the single from that, which was buying a CD with four songs on it. <laughs> yeah. What was even the point of that? It's like just a waste <laughs> of materials. <laughs> man, I've been, um, I've been, uh, rabbit holing YouTube, um, do you remember like, okay, so Woodstock 99, right? So pre 9-11, a um, lot more sort of, I don't know if I'd say innocence in the world, but it was definitely like post 80s, early 90s kind of commercialism on high, right? Like sugary snacks for kids and, um, you know, Bill Clinton was thrown out, I think, by that stage. And then, um, you know, we, we weren't at war with anybody or anything like that. So, you know, it was kind of kind of a sense of innocence, right? And then Woodstock 99 was there. And you remember the the crazy crowds that they had at Woodstock 99? And you remember the, the story? I mean, of, I was like 10 or 9. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you remember there was that with the Limp Biscuit set where uh, I think a girl died. Oh, yeah, I think I remember this, pit. actually. I remember yeah, and then the, the crowd rioted and lit fire on everything. And, yeah, and I remember this, yeah. Fucking insane. Man, can you imagine doing a gig like that? Like, crazy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I remember trying to watch some of those Wait, shows. Was this, um, it, this was not Woodstock. This was Big Day Out, right? No, no, Woodstock 99. So it was like Limp Bizkit and there was the Nine Inch Nails set where they played in mud. Um, oh, they cover okay. themselves in mud and things like that. Huh. Okay. No, big day out. I mean, we can go on a big day out, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so recently, like I remember trying to watch Woodstock 99 back then to check out some music and the only way you could get it was on VHS. And because of VHS runtime was like, what, 90 minutes, 120 minutes or something. It was like really cut down and it was cut down to the point where they only had like one song from <clears> what they thought would be the most popular bands right at the time. But since then, all of those sets are now on YouTube, which is amazing because like going back and watching the Offsprings live set from Woodstock 99, where they play Pretty Fly for a White Guy is incredible, man. It's awesome. You can watch the entire set. It's so good. And at that same show, I mean, they had like, you know, Alanis Morissette and there was Seven Dust and Corn and like, Dude, you know. Dude, Seven it's, Dust, it's, uh, so sick. Yes. Yeah, Seven Dust playing Bitch Live. Oh man, so good. So, um, yeah, that's, I love that. I don't know. I don't know how I got onto that. How did we actually get onto that? Yeah. Big day out. Do you remember big day out? Metal. Yeah. Um, I feel like you've probably watched the Metallica DVD cunning stunts as well. Yeah, Have sure. Everybody's seen that, right? Yeah. I watched that shit when I was really young too. <laughs> um, but yeah, big day out. Uh, I used to go like pretty much every year for, for a while. Did you, um, so you would have been Sydney big day out, which was like where you'd get stabbed yeah, yeah, that was the big one. That's where I used to go. Wow. Um, for people who don't know what Big Day Out is, it's essentially like this big metal festival. Uh, I mean, it's like a bunch of bands, but it's just this giant music festival where that goes like around every major city. So like Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. I think they usually do two days in Sydney and it's like 50,000 people. So it sells out two days in a row, which is 100,000 tickets. Um, 
Perth, I guess uh, they do Adelaide maybe. And I don't know. So it went bankrupt years ago. Um, yeah, it's not around it, anymore. I don't. I can't remember the last Big Day Out. And then Big Day Out was replaced kind of by Soundwave. I don't know. You might have been. Were you gone by then? Were you probably in the US by then? No, I went to a Soundwave. Went to the Soundwave, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they went bankrupt. And I've got buddies that are still owed like a fortune in, in uh, um, you know, ticket royalties and things like it's that. It's just crazy to me that these companies go bankrupt because, I mean, they always, like the festival sold out. So it's like, how do you fuck that up? You managed Yeah, to so I remember the stories that. of that one were crazy because they sold out the festival and then they didn't have money to pay for... Um, for people to load equipment in. And so you had all these bands flying out to Australia and the equipment rental companies that do the backline and, and stage and all that sort of stuff and lighting were like, there is no way we're going to set up this show because we have not been paid and we're currently owed 150000 or whatever it is. And so they just didn't set up. So you had all these bands that were coming out and going like, man, there's no way to play. There's no stage, there's no nothing. And then you had all the ticket holders are like, hang on, there's no show. So yeah, it was an, it was an absolute mess. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's like $150,000 to fix this problem for a festival that's probably got like a billion dollars invested yeah, in or something. It's yeah, like, but what, what was great about that, dude, is the just the, the acts that you saw. I remember Soundwave, I saw uh, Anthrax and then Meshuggah on the same stage, one after another. And then there was like Jimmy Eat World and Faith No More and Jane's Addiction all like together at the end there. I got to see, yeah, Faith No More right at the end. It's incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, have you like ever done live shows? Like I saw a picture on your website of you playing guitar in front of an audience with like a doom on an LED wall behind <laughs> you. So it's like, did the doom soundtrack end up becoming a show or something? Or? No. So um, it was uh, nominated for a game award and uh, they, they said, Hey, you know, what would be really cool is if you, you jumped up on, on stage and played some doom tracks and uh, I'm like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Absolutely. I think this would be cool. So we put together just, it was like a small little, little segment, like you would do at any awards show. Um, it's only a small segment. It was like three minutes. I think the time limit was, so I had to just kind of like chop a bunch of stuff down. We just sort of played it, but, um, it was at the, uh, the, the, oh God, what's the place called? It's in Los Angeles there. Um, the Microsoft theater. It's across from Microsoft. I can't even remember what it's called now. Next to the Ritz. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we played that. It was great, man. The, the show was awesome. It was really, really a lot of fun. I wanted um, – we didn't have a lot of time, I remember. I think we organized the whole thing in like a matter of days. It was about 10 days. And that was me sitting here in Australia, them saying, hey, can you play in L.A. in 10 days' time? Um, in, it's going to be streamed live to about 4 million people and um, it needs to be perfect and awesome and can you put a band together and rehearse and all that sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, cool, no worries. Just say yes to everything, right? Um, and so originally what I wanted to do was have a bit of a, a kind of id software history, uh, thing. So if I was going to be there playing some of the new doom music, I thought it'd be really, really cool to have my buddy Sonic Mayhem, Sasha, um, play synths. So that's him playing synths. He did Quake 2. He did Quake 2 when I think he was like 21 years old. Um, so yeah, he wrote all the Quake 2 and, and Quake 3 music as well. So he was awesome. I was like, man, can you, can you play synths? I think that'd be awesome if you're like on stage and do this thing. It'd be cool. And he was like, he said yes. And I was like mind blown at that. Um, and then I, I knew I needed a drummer and I originally reached out to Chris Vrenner, um, who, you know, came up with Trent and Nine Inch Nails and he, uh, he, uh, did the Doom 3 theme. And, um, he was in Chicago at the time, but unfortunately he couldn't make it. He was like super, super busy and he couldn't get it. Um, so I reached out to Matt Halpern, 
mm. from Periphery. And he was like, nice. yeah, man, I can play this. Absolutely. It'll be cool. Sick. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So, it was me, um, Matt, and Sasha. I thought you were going to say uh, Matt Gartska. I was like, oh, man. Oh, right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, just with the time, that was what we could put together. But, man, that, that was so cool being able to put that together. Um, doing shows like that's amazing because just the amount of sort of money and resources that they throw behind it is crazy. So, they gave us a rehearsal space at this, you know, spot in LA where we had to slot ourselves in between, uh, you two on the left. And I think it was Lady Gaga on the right. And there was kind of <laughs> us in between. Right. And it's this giant complex with like 16 sort of sound stages. And that's where bands go to set up their live shows and rehearse and, you know, make sure the lighting's all honed in and get everybody sorted and all that sort of stuff. That's where they go. It's just this giant, giant complex where all that is. Um, and when we went there, what's amazing about that is they have all these uh, gear companies that have like loan out there. So there's like literally a Mapex room where you can go and pick out like any Mapex equipment that you want. There's a Ludwig room, there's um, any amplifiers and things you want, whatever. Like there's so much gear that you can just be like, well, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And they put this like live show together for you. They package it up into a truck and then off you go. That's how you do your live show. And so that was like amazing seeing that. Um, so yeah, the show was really cool. We did a couple of rehearsals that were kind of crazy. Um, I, I remember I wanted to trick the camera guy out. I wanted it to look a bit crazier than it would. The award shows always have this bit of air of being like really kind of contrived and, um, everybody's on their best behavior and, um, nobody's saying anything controversial or being edgy or anything like that. It's all very, um, very, very prim and proper. And I was told very specifically that I needed to stand in one position and that's where I was going to play. And whenever you've seen an award show like the AMAs or something like that, you can see they'll have Green Day or something and everybody's like just really stuck still, like they put their cross on the ground and that's where you're meant to stay. And I was like, okay, cool, but I think I can have some fun with this. We had three rehearsals the day of the award show and for each one of those I just stood absolutely completely still. And so that got the camera guy to line up on my face properly and on Matt's face and on Sasha's face. It got the lighting guys to all focus on my face and Sasha's face and, and Matt's face. And we had they, they knew the performance was going to be three minutes. We'd already given the stems. They had the time code all set up. Like everything was all good to go. And then standing there and we get introduced and the lights come on and start playing the song. And I'm like, fuck it, man, I'm gone. And um, I just like took a bead line to my left and started running and I ran down to the left-hand side and then I took a bead line over to the right and I ran over the right-hand side. And of course, what was happening is like the camera guy and the lighting guy was like, oh shit, what the hell's actually going on? So they're kind of like trying to, trying to chase me around this stage. Um, and as a result of that, it kind of looked a little bit more chaotic than it was. Um, so yeah, but anyway, that's some, some fun memories from that one. Um, my, I'm sure the next story is like going to be shared by everybody, but I had originally planned to have a doom show on tour last year. Um, we were going to spend the majority of the year putting the show together. We were going to have a couple of shows in October leading into November. December had a couple of dates, uh, January, February, which we're into now was going to have a couple of dates as well. And this was going to be with same like stories, Matt, everybody. Matt Halpern and it, stuff ooh, like that? What's that, man? I missed that. Sorry. This was going to be with Matt Halpern as well? Uh, probably not. I, honestly, dude, we didn't even get that far. Um, at the time when COVID was kicking up, I remember chatting to Matt and he was just coming off a tour. And um, I remember they were really scared because Spencer, the singer, had gotten sick. And they were like, oh, fuck, we hope it's not this crazy virus that's kicking up all over the world. Luckily, it was just like a, something else. But... Um, but yeah, that was in February last year and it was just starting to kick up and they were starting to like rein back the shows, you know, stop doing shows. And of course now we're in the situation where we are. So anyway, long story short, 
as I'm sure with everybody else, all that got cancelled. Yep. Yeah, that happened to yeah pretty much everyone I've had on the podcast. They're like, man, I had this whole tour booked and fucking had to cancel everything. Same deal. I mean, I had like tw- uh, something like 30 shows I had to cancel in March last year because I, I just had stuff booked all the way up to like, uh, like uh, we were in f- late February and I had show like a whole tour booked for my latest EP plus like all the whole festival season basically. So um, it was like pretty much booked up until like late August, early September. And so it's about, yeah, 30 dates canceled. Um, but that, yeah, it's basically been the case for everyone, which has sucked. But yeah, I was going to say, man, like a, a Doom show seems like it would crush, at, like especially at a like touring festival circuit, like something like Big Day Out or some shit like that. I think the Doom show would go so hard. Yeah, we had it uh, We had it all planned. We we're up to the stage of kind of uh, about to do marketing for the event. Um and yeah, but I'm, I feel bad saying that story because it's like, man, as you just said, everybody's had a similar story. I've had, I've had stories that are worse. I've had a lot of stories now where um, bands that are on labels are being told that they need to, you know, have their next album in and it's going to be added to a giant conveyor belt and then put on hold. And it's going to be on hold until they're able to tour again because labels aren't willing to release the music until they're able to support the album through a tour. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense, though, because it's like, you know, to some degree, it is an economy, right? Like, and, you know, everyone needs to make money in the music industry, Um, artists more than labels, for sure. But, uh, I mean, you know, it's good for the artists to to put it out, I think, after COVID as well. And, I mean, you know, we're just, like, not that that far off, like, everyone being vaccinated. As far as I know, like, shit should be good by the summer, I hope. I'm sure those first shows are going to drop super hard anyway. I mean, I think so. I had Dead Mouse on the podcast and uh, he he was like, man, it's just going to be like the floodgates are going to open and everyone's going to be fucking doing shows and it's just going to be oversaturated. And it's, it's going to be <laughs> Dude, like... I love Joel. When Doom came out, he just like hit me up on Skype one day and... Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've never done the, the, the release of music or anything like that. And so, so I know obviously like your releases on, on mousetrap and stuff like that, of course, um, massive fan of all that sort of stuff, but I'd, I'd never even spoken to Joel, been a massive fan of Joel for a long time. And he just like reached out to me one day and man, we geeked out on Skype about distortion for about four hours. It was <laughs> so cool. Nice. Yeah. Did, did he hit you up like based on the GDC video you did or? Oh, I can't remember. I think... I think it might have even been before that GDC video. Yeah. I remember when that um, GDC video came out, like it's all people in my Discord server were talking about for like a week. Oh, that cool. Was, oh, that's like, nice. People I were remember... basically taking the, the big chain that you made with like all the pedals and stuff and like trying yeah. to recreate it in racks in like Bitwig yeah. and Ableton and stuff <laughs> like that. That's cool. A, a few people did a pretty good job. Like you could send sine waves into like a few things and it would like create these pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, stuff results. I did on internal, which I didn't get a chance to talk too much about was using, um, motorized pentometers to, uh, control pedals and stuff with automation. Uh, I'm going to Google what a motorized pentometer <laughs> is. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, okay. So take a guitar pedal, right? Guitar pedal has knobs on it, right? Okay. Oh, it's a, it's a, a motorized potentiometer, you mean? Potentiometer, sure, sure, sure. So, right, yeah. gotcha. Forgive me, I've got three hours. So it's, so it's basically um, like a like a you can attach an LFO to a piece of hardware, basically. Precisely. So the trouble that I ran into with that um, with that system on on Doom was that it was a static system. So the only thing that you could change was what you sent through the chain. And the truth about that chain was that if you started to send anything a little bit more harmonically complex, 
Um, it just fell apart. It just became noise. And that was kind of not it. You've always got to retain the musicality of it. It can't just be noise, as, you, as we were talking about noise music before, well, especially in a video game sense, right? It has to be musical. So um, but the trouble I ran into, I was like, you know what? This, this, this setting has a, like a really cool, interesting filter on this rap pedal, for example. I'd love to be able to like automate it. And what I was doing was like doing it by hand. I'd set up some stuff up and record it and I'd actually do it by hand. But for Doom Eternal, I was able to wire stuff up that allowed me to send CV signals to little motorized things that were sitting on each one of these knobs. And so when I pushed the automation lane up, the, the motor would turn and would turn the knob. Um, so it was like real-time automation of uh, knobs in the real world, which was kind of fun. Yeah. That was really cool. Doing that stuff was really cool. That's sick. Yeah. Um, could you not have maybe just like gotten... I mean, I guess like uh, at this point in the Doom uh, world, just the sort of like sound is so uh, characteristic to the game that it's maybe pretty hard to change at this point. But could you not have just like got a series of like Erica Fusion plasma drives or something and just sent like CV into those? Or? Yeah, I have a bunch of those <laughs> sitting over there. But yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. It totally could do that sort of thing. Um, I just, there's some like old rat pedal, for example, just you know, doesn't have CV in or anything like that. So there's no expression that I could do in it. So a lot of the pedals and things that I had just were kind of a bit more old school, like three knobs and stuff like that. And I wanted to kind of play with them. But yeah, that, really, that stuff like, was really cool. Yeah, I love You really it. wanted to continue to use those pedals just because they were so like characteristic. I to just the sound had them here. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, I just kind of had them here and, and did that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I absolutely could have probably just ran a, a bunch of Eurorack stuff and, and run CV out to it that way. Yeah, for sure. I love the fact that everybody was like, you know, attempting to create that sort of stuff with racks and things too. Um, I know the stuff that I was doing on the ground, just a CPU would melt with the amount of stuff that was going on. Um, yeah, you'd need shitloads of plugins and stuff like that. And then you run into issues with like, um, um, you know, it's it's a bit contrived. When, when you've got like 40 pedals laying on the ground and everything's kind of plugged in, it's all sitting there in front of you and you've just spent the morning setting it up. So you kind of know it back to front. When it's a rack in Ableton, just for some reason, my brain starts to like not see it after a while. And I, I start being like, whoa, hang on. Oh, I can't remember. Why was this sending to something where? And do you know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, you have to go menu diving a little too much and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's nice to have a lot of gear. Uh, actually, just like recently, pretty much sold off all my Eurorack gear, though. I just found like I wasn't using it a lot. Um, wow. Like I'm mostly just like all in the box these days. And I mean, I don't even use a MIDI controller to input notes. Like I just put them all in with my mouse. And, like, <laughs> really? Yeah, I've, I've never like played them in with a keyboard or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's just cool. My, just my style of working. Um, I have a tiny, tiny little like... 84 hp like mounted into my desk here and it's just morphogene q pass plasma drive uh maths like just the basics <laughs> and it's yeah, mainly maths, just like uh, it's funny math has become like that i'd say staple that everybody has maths it's amazing that became like the, the standard yeah. euro rack module that everybody needs to get it's kind of cool well it can kind of do everything right it's like an oscillator it's a mm -hmm. envelope it's an lfo and it's it's pretty funny um it's like a meme some people will be like hey you like my new rack and they'll like post it in their muff wiggler or whatever and it's just like 10 maths yeah yeah box. yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I love it too yeah. it, it kind of goes back to um I, well i'm interested in asking you why you felt um to, to go that way um but it's interesting for me, I, I love the hardware aspect because of what you were saying before is it kind of gives you a different user interface of, of how you're interacting with the sound. So because I have a cable that I've plugged into the output of this oscillator, where else can I put it? Oh, there's a spot, bam, right? That's it. As you were talking about before, that's literally what you were saying before. So um, 
So you found that you kind of weren't using it. Does that mean that you were able to kind of pull off like all the crazy stuff that you do in the box comfortably or? Pretty much. And yeah. also <clears throat> I just felt like it was uh, taking up a lot of space and it was like a lot of money tied up in gear that I could have just like spent on other shit. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I felt like I was using using the hardware like once a year or something. So wow. I was like, it's just, it's a waste of time for me to like yeah. have this sitting here basically. I guess I'm, I'm somewhat fortunate because, you know, sometimes, especially on a game job, like I just get given... I don't know, a list of like 120 minutes of battle music that I've got to do. And, um, you know, it's like you, I can play around with the same sort of stuff in the box, but sometimes it's nice just to jump out and, and record a bunch of loops and things like that or whatever it is. And like, like that's cool. But certainly with the Doom stuff, it was it more led to what we were talking before, which was more like technique-based stuff. Um, and so it was like, you know, if we, if we spread basic waveforms, sine waves, noise, triangles, squares, whatever, really basic stuff, pulsing, um, through pedals, just the interface of that is going to be different and it's going to inevitably lead to somewhere else than I would if I tried to set that up in the box. Like I just would not go to Ableton and go, you know what, I might try this. Whereas if I've got like pedals in the ground, I'll do something different. So, um, but yeah, I totally understand too. It's, you know, it's, it's every, everybody's, you know, different and you're, you're kind of all expressing each other in a different way, but but it's yeah. also like we were saying earlier, like the creative limitation, right? And I'm kind of, um, I don't know, I feel like minimalism is such a virtue. It's like uh, such a privilege almost to be able to just get rid of all your shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, it is these days. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I know. And yeah, see, it's it's funny how hindsight kind of kicks in after a while because now like looking back on that Doom stuff, it's like, you know, it's it, a lot of that stuff's kind of obsessively, eccentrically... Um, Ex I don't know, just excessive, I guess. It's like too much. It's like, hey, everybody, look at this GDC talk. I'm going to put 40 pedals on the ground. Aren't I brilliant? And it's like, you know, that's it's it's the wrong message from that is like you need these pedals to make this sort of thing or you need you need to buy things to do this or whatever. It's just it's funny how hindsight you're like, oh, maybe it feels like it's almost a bit dicky now, right, in a way. I don't know. It feels strange. Mm. How did you get into the music uh, like into game music like how, how did you get into say like doing i mean you've done doom wolfenstein killer instinct need for speed like just a bunch of awesome games um how did you get into all that yeah sure so um it's funny so we were both talking about growing up in australia and uh, i don't know what you were like when you were kind of leaving school with music and your kind of prospects in the music industry in australia and and all that sort of thing but um, when I was leaving school, this is like pre-social media, it's pre-SoundCloud, it's pre, you know, obviously pre-Spotify and things like that. So where, where um, did you go to school? What, sorry? Where did you go to school? I, so I went to, I moved around a lot as a kid. So I went to a bunch of different primary schools and a bunch of different high schools, but, um, but like you for music, I, where did you go? To oh, I didn't know. I, I, missed, oh, gotcha, I, gotcha. um, I applied for, um, I applied for the for QUT in Brisbane for the Queensland mm. University of Technology. They had a music degree there, and I failed the open test. Um, oh, I just got rejected. They didn't say why I'd failed or anything mm. like that. And then I also applied for the CON for the Conservatorium of Music, and I wanted to do a jazz degree there. And uh, I got into that one, um, but I quit after a week, um, <laughs> which uh, I know it sounds a bit crazy, but... Um, I turned up and realized that the beautiful experiences that I had had in blues and jazz um, 
you know, with, with bands and playing that live was not the same as an academic four-year degree of, of doing that. I thought, oh, man, this is going to be great. Four years of me just jamming with the most, like, insanely talented, technically brilliant musicians out. This is going to be brilliant. But it's not. It was like, you know, writing essays on free jazz and, um, uh, I don't know, all sorts of other stupid shit. I can't remember. It was a while Like, ago. write a 6,000-word essay on hard bop. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. It was more... It's funny how jazz in itself has become such a, like, oh, God, I'm going to get controversial here, but jazz in itself, in my mind, has become such a white privileged wank fest, right? And it's completely lost all of the the kind of, like, expressive, I don't know, anger and and fun and rebellion and things where that music came from, right? And it's more about creating some sort of pretentious academia out of it now rather than you know having it some sort of form of like highly technical improvisation that's also rebellious in a way does it does that follow i don't know it's getting kind of highbrow there do you know what i mean yeah i mean i think like most genres of music at this point um that was sort of brought to us by african-american people have been definitely gentrified to some degree and stolen by the white man yeah for sure absolutely sort of like not so much stolen but just made lamer by white people (laughs) yeah and i think honestly i think the epitome of that is the the making an academic thing out of it right i think that's that's when it gets kind of silly it's like oh how do we create a royal society type situation out of this one let's uh, well yeah it's like jazz is almost like uh, like doing it, it's almost like an oxymoron, right? Like doing yes. an academic degree in jazz because it's like the whole point of it was sort of to break all the rules almost. Yes, precisely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so enough happened in that first week for me to say, this is definitely not what I want to do. Um, so I, I quit. I literally went down to the, the human resources department after a week and I said, I, I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore. Um, and they're like, what? You're kidding, right? I'm like, no, no, I really don't want to do this. Um, so I left. Uh, anyway, so shortly after that, what what was I doing? So I needed to to make money, um, and I really wasn't good at anything. I'd, I'd done year twelve, which is the equivalent in I don't know is that the equivalent in the US of like a high school diploma? That's kind of about it. Year twelve. Um, I think uh, so. They have three types of school here. They have uh, they have like I think what what the equivalent of like primary school is, and they have what's called middle school, mm-hmm. which for us in Australia would be year seven and eight. And then they have high school, which for us in Australia would be years nine through 12. Right. So yeah, it's just like, I think having a high school degree in America. Yeah. But, so that's um, where I so, got to. So the one you did is like the HSC, right? Um, so we did, we did QCS then, which was okay. Queensland and it was backward and it was the only place right. in, uh, yeah. I don't remember doing, are you talking about end of year exam stuff? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's the same thing. So you finish year 12. Yes. I did year 12 right. and that was about it. Yeah. So you finished high school. I finished high school. Yes. Um, nice. I didn't want to, I wanted to quit at year <laughs> 10 and practice guitar for two years. That was my plan. But, uh, the, uh, authority figures in my life had other plans for me. Um, so anyway, uh, long story short. So, um, so the next thing is I needed to make some sort of money. Right. And I really was not good at anything else. I could play guitar quite well. And that was about it. So what I needed to do was make some money out of that skill. And the skill at the time was teaching that skill to others. So I, uh, I was teaching guitar and then performing that skill in bands. Um, and then, so that's what I was doing on the weekends. I was playing in bands. And when I was in high school, I had a great experience playing in bands. I played in a blues band in uh, in regional Queensland, and we used to do five gigs a weekend while I was in high 
school. So it was two gigs Friday night, two gigs Saturday night, and one gig on Sunday afternoon. Now, a gig was not like a set, right? A gig was four hours. So it was four hours at one show on Friday and then straight across town to another one and four hours again, finished about 4 a.m. Did that Friday night, Saturday night, and then we used to do a Sunday session as well. And so you're playing eight hours two nights a week and then four hours one yes. afternoon a week yep Jesus. in beer soaked cigarette butt placed like pubs <laughs> out in the middle of central queensland um when nice. i was like 15 full 16 of, uh, full of bogans oh you have no idea Dude, um can, can you describe a bogan to the best of your ability because i have had the hardest <laughs> time describing what a bogan is to american people because it's not a redneck right it's like different it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't think there's a full equivalent because if you say redneck, redneck these days I'd say would even mean something different to um, what I would have thought redneck meant like eight years ago, for example. Um, mm. Redneck I think now kind of gets thrown around with people that wear silly red hats and et cetera. So whereas <laughs> I think that's not the same as a bogan as such. A bogan I'd say is just, oh, man, that's a hard one. It's something really hard that, to describe, really right? Lowbrow... <laughs> Real low brow, lowest common denominator, the average, the below average is the best you can aim for. And, and it's what you celebrate. Um, you're probably a good dose of racist, sexist, outdated, um, probably colonial attitudes from 150 years ago that are so irrelevant. It like hurts my brain. Um, and, you're, and if like anyone disagrees with you, you fight them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm expecting hate for even saying that on your podcast, put it that way. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, just, uh, in England, I'd say it's probably a chav, right? The equivalent would be a chav. Yeah. But, but it's also different to a chav as well. Like bogans are not like they're their own thing. And it's always hard to ex- describe the, the specific flavor that yeah. they are to people who have not yeah. experienced. Especially bogans. so regional Queensland where I grew up was like, you know, bogan heyday. That's kind of, you know, proper racist politicians and, um, I, redneck behavior, like um, I remember my, my wife tells a story about the neighbors wanting to get a snake out of their washing machine, so they threw the washing machine out the back steps and then l- laid into it with a shotgun um, <laughs> one Sunday morning, which I guess sounds like redneck behavior, but um, yeah, but, uh, that does sound quite get, American, actually. It's interesting though, too, because I, I would say you don't really get redneck politicians. Oh, maybe you do get redneck politicians. I know redneck's probably not the the equivalent because what I was going to say is you can get like pretty high level bogans in Australia. Like it's all bogans on television. I would say it's all bogans that are, um, you know, certainly involved in sport. It's certainly bogans that are involved in politics. Um, Have you ever yeah. checked out the subreddit cashed up bogans? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so for that for that phrase um, for your listeners, basically a lot of these areas which typically were quite poor for quite a long time, which I think is the truth that led to a lot of this behavior. But um, years ago, there were like booms in natural resources in these areas. So lots of copper and iron ore and coal and things as such, which led to massive mining booms. And those mining booms led to, uh, you know, your bogan friend that used to pick his nose at the back of the school class and not be able to spell his name correctly, um, all of a sudden, you know, carrying a shovel at the mines and being on $150,000 a year. And so he, he, the epitome of him was, you know, expressing his, his financial success was probably buying a jet ski and uh, I don't know, <laughs> whatever, cast a bogans. What are some of the good ones you've seen? I haven't looked at the Reddit in a long right. time, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's basically what happens. Is a lot of these bogans are 
yeah, started working in the mines in Perth and just making shit tons of money. Um, right. But yeah, so anyway, you're playing lots right. of gigs on so, the weekend. Back to the story. <laughs> so, um, so I needed to make some money out of that. And, and essentially what happened is when I started playing bands, playing in bands in around Brisbane, which is where I, I was at the time, um, the, the experience wasn't what I had as a teenager, which is playing in blues bands and having a great, wonderful time. It was playing the same 40 songs every night to the same bogans in the crowd and getting really quite depressed about it. None of it was technically challenging. None of it was interesting. None of it was like even music that I would probably listen to. It was like songs from a different generation as such. Um, so anyway, um, the other thing that was about that time is that I could see that there were other people that I was playing with in these bands that were 45, 50, 55, 60, whatever. And it's all they had done since they were 18, 19. And, uh, you know, not to lay any offense or anything to them, but it was kind of like I could see the future there right in front of me. It was, you know, being 55 years old and still trying to pack up your drum kit, um, which is soaked in beer and piss. Um, at, at 2 a.m. after playing fucking, I don't know, Screaming Jets for your final song or whatever it is, right? Um, and, and it was cool, but it was like, it's just not something that I wanted to do future-wise. So with my skill set, which was really just music, I started looking around into different ways that I could uh, hopefully have a career out of, out of music. And I wasn't pretty enough to become a pop star. I wasn't kind of uh, country enough to be a country star. Um, but I looked into writing music for different purposes and that started to look like something I could do because I was very fortunate to be learning guitar at the same time that computers and consumer computers were kind of getting cheaper. So I'd always grown up with a computer in the house of some sort and I'd been playing around with music software and things like this, really early sort of stuff. So I had a bit of a knowledge on how to make music at a computer and I, I knew I had an audio interface and I had a computer and I had a guitar and I went, you know what, I can, I think I can actually produce songs. I think I can actually make something and burn it to a CD and give it to somebody. And so I started writing music, putting it on these CDs and sending it out. Now, I didn't expect to be hired by the film industry. There is no way I would have expected that at the time. Um, but to my great surprise, in Australia at the time, there was about 40 video game companies and there were companies in Melbourne. There was companies in Sydney. There was even a couple of companies in Brisbane, but there was really nobody doing music here for these companies. These companies were here making games, but they're all going overseas to get their sound done or their music. And I was like, well, this is, this is kind of cool. This might even be a potential opportunity, right? Like they could have somebody local that they go to, to do music. And so I started reaching out to these companies and to my great surprise, they started getting back to me. And that was literally burning CDs and sending it in the mail out to these places to, and say, hey, look, I write some music. I'm local, I'm in town. You know, do you want to uh, work on something together or whatever? Um, so yeah, it kind of just started from there. I started getting a couple of things. Um, after doing a couple of games, I had a couple of credits under my belt and I kind of wanted to push it up to the next level. And I knew that if you really wanted to take it to the next level in the game industry, you really had to go to GDC, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. Um, and uh, because it's, it's incredible for game developers, there's 20,000 game developers from all over the world that converge on San Francisco for a week and talk about nothing but video games. So I'm like, if I want to be in the video game industry, that's where I need to be. So I saved up all my money and I bought a ticket and I went to GDC. And uh, it was great. I met a lot of people. And it's funny, that first trip that I went to GDC with, there's still a lot of those people I communicate with um, these days, like still good friends from, from long ago. Uh, and it's been interesting to see them go off and do their, their things in the game industry as well, which is, which is really cool. 
Um, I kept going to GDC um, and looking for work and, you know, chatting to people and, you know, trying to sell my wares as it was. Um, <laughs> and one very fortunate GDC, I got to meet uh, a guy named Charles Deenan. And Charles is an incredible uh, audio person in the, in the game industry. He has been around for a very, very long time. He's one of the proper OGs, you'd say. And he, um, uh, he's done hundreds of games uh, from a very young age. And I got talking to him and he kind of became a mentor for me at the time. Um, and Charles at the time was audio director at EA. And they were doing Need for Speed, doing Need for Speed games. And so I started working on Need for Speed games through Charles with EA. And Charles was the one that taught me everything I know about sound. So that's everything about every processing, every approach that I have, uh, everything about music. When I sit down to do something for a game, I'm thinking, you know, what did Charles teach me? So all that stuff I, I learned from Charles. Um, and so once I had that, you know, it was a couple of years working for that and then, you know, branched out into a couple of things and blah, blah, blah. Here we are now, I guess. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. No, that's great. Yeah. I'm <laughs> super interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess when like COVID is over, I should go to GDC because yeah, I've thought about this a few times. Like I've, um, so my, my experience was essentially like I got out of, uh, SA I did SAE in Sydney. Wow. Um, the original. Okay. Yep. Uh, well the original I think was Byron, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Byron, yes, you're right. Byron Bay. I think Sydney was like one of the first though. Well, at least I, Byron Bay is the headquarters. Maybe Sydney was the first. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's cool. Um, but yeah, so I did that, um, uh, got my degree there. And then by the time I had like finished that degree, I was sort of like touring because I'd already been put out, putting out albums and EPs and shit on like SoundCloud at the time. Uh, and then, yeah, that's kind of my, like, since then I was just like, well, I mean, I have a thing that's making me money now shows. So like, I might as well just keep doing that. And I was doing YouTube tutorials and like streaming and putting sample packs out online and like just all the, the collection of all those things kind of like made a wage so i was like ah, oh, it's things are working um <clears throat> but i've always thought i'd be sick to like sort of pack up shop on the show side of thing or like like at least just do way less of them instead of like a hundred a year which is what i was doing before covid holy and hell then, man yeah i was playing like two shows a week uh Dude. and just like flying everywhere basically and uh wow yeah getting into like just more studio work and and this year having a break has like kind of shown me that I much prefer being in the studio than flying every weekend. It's much healthier. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, I, another thing I like kind of noticed, uh, like I had Richard on the podcast the other day and he said, um, you hit him up to do like some sounds for doom. Yes. And yeah, uh, he works on a uh, Wolfenstein as well. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and one thing I kind of thought is like, uh, it's almost like, like how many other people do you hire to do like sounds and help with the, with doom like when when you have you know you you're, you're like assigned by the company basically yes. the job of like make this happen right and yeah. then you kind of like subcontract out like little jobs to other people like how many people like richard do you hire for that sure kind of so it's interesting right so uh i told you a little bit before i used to live in uh, i lived in santa monica for a little while and what i was doing then it was actually trying to get into the film industry and i was uh, apprenticing under another composer and i very quickly learned that hollywood is a bit uh, well, I don't know about now and I don't want to make any assumptions for anybody, of course, big disclaimers and things of such, but certainly at that time when I was there, it was extremely exploitative. And, um, very quickly I worked out that I was actually ghostwriting for this person and I wasn't, um, getting credited and I wasn't, um, being paid. And in fact, I was actually paying to be there. I was paying rent and, 
um, you know, looking after the place and all that sort of thing. And I was, I was being an apprentice to this person as a, as a ghostwriter. And the peak of that was when this particular composer was at a awards show and they were accepting accolades for a score that I was currently finishing for them back in the studio. Um, as in writing, not, not mixing, not mastering, not, you know, the, the polishing sort of stuff. No, I was actually writing the score that this person was getting the accolades for. Um, and I was like, fuck this, man, this is crazy. No way I'm doing this. This is stupid. And I made a thing to myself then to say at the same time, I'm never going to do that to anybody else. I'm never going to hire a ghostwriter. I'm never going to exploit somebody like that. Never, 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 never. I'm always going to credit everybody correctly. I'm always going to pay really, really well. Um, never going to do that to anybody. So, um, so when it comes time for me now on a project, um, and I want to collaborate with somebody, it is a collaboration. So, um, I reached out to Richard because I wanted some really just crazy sounds for Wolfenstein, but I also wanted some really interesting retro sci-fi sounds. So I'm talking about like retro sort of 60s, 70s science fiction type sounds. Um, and I knew that Richard could pull it off. I knew he had a really big synth collection and I knew that he uh, had the knowledge behind that sort of stuff as well. And so that's what I'm looking for when I'm collaborating with somebody. I'm looking for kind of, you know, skill set and knowledge um, that they can then bring to the score that brings it up to a, a whole new level. Uh, Killer Instinct was a really good project for that because each character, so Killer Instinct is a fighting game and each character has a stage. That's their platform and, and you fight on these stages and each stage has a theme. So that theme needs to represent uh, three things. It needs to represent the uh, the character and who that character is, so their backstory or, um, you know, the, the, the whatever, the, the characteristics of that character. I can't think of better wording. Um, it also needs to represent the stage. So is it a big vista? Is it like a creepy hallway? Is it uh, some, some old monastery? Is it like a street setting, right? So it needs to fit the vibe. But it also needs to fit a fighting game as well. It also needs to represent what it's actually doing. That's the purpose of the song. And so with Killer Instinct, there was so much varied music that I needed to do. And the deadlines were really, really short. I remember we had a month to do a character's theme um, for, I think it was about two and a half years of work like that. Each month there was a new character and we needed to conceptualize, write, uh, work with others, record everything, mix everything, um, do all the specific video game stuff, breaking it out, getting it working correctly, and then ship it out to the world in a month. So it was, it was quite, a, quite a hectic schedule. And so that was great because I was able to reach out to so many different people. So wonderful string players in the UK um, got to collaborate with really cool people like Amiga Sparks for TJ Combo's theme and um, Ali Edwards, who then went on to do like Devil Trigger and stuff for, uh, for Devil May Cry. Um, she's like, uh, you know, super cool with uh, the whole Devil May Cry universe and things like now. And Casey as well, her partner, uh, he helped out with everything as well. So that's it. So that's kind of how it is. It's more like a collaboration thing. It's more like how can we both get ourselves together to bring the score up to a whole new level? Um, so that, that, that's how these things come about. Yeah, I kind of um, noticed this once uh, when I was <clears throat> sort of looking into Hans Zimmer's career a little bit. And I was like, man, it's like a factory farm for scores. Like he's basically, um, not to like hang shit on Hans or whatever, he's obviously amazing, but like, um, I mean, he does like so many scores a year, right? And I was just like, how the fuck? Like, how is he scoring this much film? Like, this is insane. And I looked into it and it's like, man, it's a, like Hans Zimmer is like a studio. It's not Hans Zimmer. Like it's, it's like a, a lot of people are Hans Zimmer at this point, you know? Yeah. And, um, so most people wouldn't know that, that Hans has remote control productions, which is in Santa Monica. And, um, the, uh, the, the stuff that's there is that you've got 
Hans, and then there's all of these other composers. And honestly, I've lost track of who's actually there anymore, but there was a point where like everybody was actually working out of this one studio. So you have Steve Jablonski doing the Transformers movies and you have Harry Gregson Williams over there doing his thing. And you had, um, I don't know, I kind of like off the top of my head, the Raman Jwadi was there, I remember. Whoops, bye. Um, Raman Jwadi was there doing like Game of Thrones and like all in this one complex. And there's something really awesome about that too. Like it's essentially like the best of the best film, TV, music place, right? And if you wanted to work anywhere, I'm sure that would be the place to be, right? Right in there and all, all amongst that sort of thing. But when you make that commitment, and this is to Hans's credit, when you make that commitment, you need to keep that commitment, right? So if you're going to commit to a building in LA and supply everybody with the best music out there, you need to meet that commitment. And you need to meet that commitment not on your terms, but it's on the terms that come from the film industry and the contracts that you're signing. So um, when the uh, studio wants that thing done, they just kind of have to get it done on, on, on the time that it is. And he makes a lot of money by doing that, of course. It's, uh, they, they don't, they're not cheap, put it that way. They're, um, they're, they're, you get what you pay for there. Um, but he knows they'll be able to pull it off. They'll be able to get it done. So that next, when there's the next big movie that comes out, the studio is going to go back to them because they know they'll get it done. And that is kind of why Hans approaches it like that. Yeah, and that's cool. Um, but yeah, kind of like... I've just thought about that a lot. It's like, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that at some point, um, like the, the process of, of working to this level. Cause I mean, like you said, um, you were having to do like a new character theme, like every month for years. And like, it's, and I mean, like I've scored one movie. I scored, um, this movie called mum and dad with, uh, Nicholas Cage and Selma Blair for, um, Brian Taylor, the, the guy who made crank with, um, Jason Statham and stuff. Um, so I, I scored that and it's like, I just realized how demanding it is. Like, it's just, they're just like, I need this. I need this. I need this. And it's just like, fuck man. It's like, I, I fucking wrote like a hundred tracks in like six months, which oh, is yeah. like just insane. Yeah. And the, I think the untold story about that is that they'll tell you what they want in week one. And so you yeah. do that. And then they'll tell you something completely different in week two. So you do that. And then you tell us something completely different in week three. And it's, it's extraordinary. Like on, on, say, a Doom project, there is more music thrown out than there is it goes into the game. There is hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of content because a producer says you need it done by Friday, so you have it done by Friday. And then on Monday they say, hmm, the game's actually changed. It turns out that that thing we told you to do last week didn't work, right? We need like to it's now it a now. platformer. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, honestly, that, that happens. Or uh, all the music's too distracting or that... Um, you know, the, the creative director decided that they wanted a completely different feel here. It's actually a love story now, um, whatever it is. And, you know, film's the same, right? And that's that's why. So it's when somebody says, oh, but you had six months to work on it. It's like, yeah, but you don't realize I did that whole film each week for six months. That's how that works, right? That's the truth of it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I can understand how this turns into a, you know, um, I mean, I like for the movie I did, I only got paid 30 grand to like score the whole thing, which is like, um, as far as I know, uh, I mean, it depends who I ask as to like whether or not that was a good deal. I mean, I think it was a good deal just because I like wanted to get my foot in the door and like do something right. Um, and it's not a, like, I'm not going to turn that shit down. If someone's like, Hey, want to score a Nicolas Cage movie again? I'd for 30 grand, I'd be like fucking done. Like I'm not yeah, going to yeah, turn that yeah. shit down. I think that the um, pe people don't understand that that's not like 30 grand in the hand, you know, for that it's like 30 grand for six months. And if you think of oh, six months by 30 grand, then it's like, Oh, hang on. That's actually, but, but honestly, I would say, um, that rate, um, I know people doing horror films in Hollywood for 2000. So exactly. Uh, yeah. I've, I've heard of this kind of thing as well. So like mm -hmm. the, some of the people I was hanging around in, I was actually staying with a friend uh, in West Hollywood whilst I was working on this film for a bit. And nice. he was like, he moved 
to West Hollywood to try and get into the industry. And he was like mm -hmm. going to all the screenings and going to all the conferences and like trying to get his foot in the door. Um, and he was like, just uh, in awe that I just like got this email in my inbox one day. And he's like, man, I think you can be like really happy with, with this job. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I'm trying super hard. And he's like, not an untalented dude. He's a really talented dude. Um, so he was like, yeah, man, that's like very lucky. You should be stoked about it. So I was, um, would it be too much to ask, like in the realm of what kind of budgets you get for the, for the doom stuff? I or? can't. Yeah, I can't because yeah. there's too much tied up into it. So one there's, it's, it's part of a contract. The contract has a confidentiality agreement. So me literally saying that sort of thing is, um, is breaking it. So what I can do is talk about sort of like the range of where sort of music budgets are. I can, I can probably do that. Um, I can tell you that each company is, is different. So they used to be, Oh, 18 years ago, there was a guy that wrote a book. I'm not going to say what book it is, but um, whatever it is anyway. But uh, in the book, he talks about what the rate was for composers at the time. And he listed the rate as getting um, $1,000 per minute of music. So that's a finished piece of music. Um, they look at how many minutes it is, and then they pay you $1,000 per each one of that minute. And for anybody now, like if you've got like 60 tracks on SoundCloud, you're like, oh man, this would be worth a fortune. But again that's the one minute of music that they put into the game, okay? So you might have written 15, 20 minutes to get that one minute approved that you can then get paid for, and that might have taken you six months to do. So don't think you're, like, you know, dripping money by the end of it. Um, so, but anyway, what happened in a, in a, in sort of, uh, what's the word, but inevitably, inadvertently, that's the word I'm trying to think of, from that book is that every other games company in the world went, oh, okay, that's what we should be paying people. And it took the industry a long time to sort of move from that concept. And the industry is still stuck on this per minute idea um, that you get paid on the per minutes of what, um, what ends up in the game. Um, so what happens when you negotiate a, a fee at the start of a project is you're negotiating a per minute rate. Cool. And so that per minute rate um, for bigger games, well, it can, it scales quite high. If you're looking at a really big Hollywood composer, it can be, you know, half of what you got paid for the film per minute, right? With a, I'm talking like if you're going to go hire the biggest of the big in Hollywood, that's kind of what you'd be expecting to pay. Um, down from there, the indie world can be, I've seen people do it for a dollar a minute. So it can be all over the place. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and this is um, like when you're negotiating a deal, uh, you're saying to them, uh, I want X dollars per minute of music that ends up in the game or yeah. X dollars of music that I write for the game. And no, so it's, uh, it one gets, sec, I'm just going to shut my blinds, but I'm still listening. No, 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 you're good, dude. So it gets, um, it gets sketchy. Basically what they're meant to do, and this is why I'm not a fan of this method, but what they're meant to do is that two years before the game comes out, they're meant to sit down and have a really good, confident idea about what the game is going to look like. And I can honestly tell you that in two years' time, the game looks completely fucking different as to what it did. But anyway, what they're meant to do is to look down and go, okay, well, this is the scope of our game. They have a chat to their team and they say, how many minutes of music do you think we're going to need to get this over the line? So how many boss battles, how many action sequences, how many cutscenes, how many menu pieces, you know, is there a PVP aspect or a multiplayer aspect? Um, what is it? So how much music do we need? Um, and then they come up with an, with like a minute number and I'm talking about amount of minutes and typically most games will be looking for about 60 minutes to three hours, four hours of music. I've seen some scores. I've done scores at a five hours, that sort of range. 
Um, so so you, you, that's the idea. And then what happens is that they need to go to the money people and say, look, we how much budget per minute can we get for this? And then they have a negotiation internally about how much money they can afford to actually pay for, for music. And at that time, they're also negotiating with the composer. So if a composer says, I want, I don't know, $10,000 a minute, not that that's a going rate, it's a very expensive Hollywood rate, that, that is not what, what people get paid. But say they say $10,000 a minute, if they take $10,000 a minute back to their producer and they say, when we need 60 minutes of music, that producer goes, there is no way I'm paying like a house worth of, of, of money for this score. That's not going to happen. And so then they go back and they like slice it down to say 30 minutes and they get their budget into there. Um, I'm probably giving a really long-winded answer to this question, but the point... That's absolutely to... fine, man. No, this is what this podcast <laughs> is about. Right. The point I'm trying to get across is that every single project is different. Every deal is different. Every deal we've ever signed is completely different. Um, I've done games where um, it becomes very clear at the end. This has been a problem uh, a few times is that it becomes very clear at the end that the deal that you signed is not going to be enough music, not going to give them enough music in the game for the for the game to ship. Um, and so what happens then is that you are faced with a very difficult position where you have to decide, do I do extra minutes to make the game sound better? Or do I say, no, that's, that's my budget has run out, you know, piss off, go away, I'm done. Because what happens then is that the game comes out with less music. If the game comes out with less music, there's a really good chance that people are going to say things in reviews like the music was repetitive. And if they start <laughs> yeah. saying that, then all of a sudden you look like the one who failed. Yeah, you might so not you get could, another job. Or... Yeah, so you could be put into a position where you're like, you know what, there's no budget for that boss battle, but you guys really need music for that boss battle because if you ship it out with no music, then everybody's going to say that it's me who was the one that, that failed. So there can be situations like that. That's why I'm not a fan of the per minute system. I would rather uh, a system of um, uh, scope as in this is what we've agreed to. And when the game scales, we scale you. Um, if the game scales back, we scale you back. Scope sort of based system. Um, what was the the negotiation that you had with the film? I'm curious. Was that scope or did they say we're going to require they, 60 minutes of music for that? No, they just said this is how much money we have. We're, like we don't want to negotiate. This is just what we have. Like do you want it or not basically. Yeah. And um, yeah, he... he uh, Brian's like he's a really fair dude like he was not coming to me trying to lowball me he was like um, like I've had him on the podcast too he's a good friend of mine at this point and like yeah like I trust he was like just not trying to like you know lowball me or fuck with me he, he was just like this is the budget that we just got given and like yeah. we're happy to just give that to you do you want the job or not and I was just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, can, uh, you but, yourself, you can make a calculated decision with that, though. You're like, well, I, I know movies. I've seen a few movies. I imagine dude, it's going to be 90 minutes to two hours. It's kind of got these themes in it. Like, I'm Well, we'll get this, do. dude. Like, I actually wrote the whole score for that movie in the back of a Mercedes Sprinter van on a laptop whilst doing a 35-date tour. So it's like it took me six months, three of which I was doing this tour and then three of which I was staying in an Airbnb in LA. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you that was my only... on a laptop in a vehicle? Yeah, in a moving vehicle. I was just like driving across America doing shit. Do you not America get like car shows. sick and stuff? Not really. No, I don't I don't get nausea in cars. I get um, nausea. I had fucking nausea last night for some reason. I was just laying in bed like, fuck, I feel dizzy, but um, not, not in cars. Have you sent your amazing video that you sent me out to the world yet? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I have posted you? it on Patreon. 
Oh yep. my God. That was incredible, <laughs> man. Isn't it interesting how we as human beings just through listening to a story can have a just some information. Yeah. I know it's crazy. Like, um, so it's called vasovagal syncope. That's, that's the, the thing. And, um, most people get it from seeing blood. Yeah, and then they'll get like dizzy and, and faint, right? Like that's the classic, yeah, yeah. you know, see blood and faint thing. Um, for me, I don't get it with blood. I get it with uh, just like medical shit. You know, if you yeah. tell me like a crazy medical story, or I see some like crazy medical TV show or something, I just get like sick and queasy. Really? Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. tell you any crazy medical stories, but it's just it's a fascinating <laughs> thing, isn't it? That like you, there's a physical reaction that occurs from it because of what you're listening to. And it's, yeah, it's like amazing how your brain works response. like that then. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, your brain is just like an input-output system, right? It's like whatever you put in. If you put in good information, like, um, you know, you just want a million dollars and, you know, your uh, health is perfect now and there's good food out there to eat. <laughs> like all yeah, of a sudden yeah. your brain's like, sick, I feel great. Yeah, yeah. Versus like, you know, if someone calls you on the telephone and goes like, yeah, your dad just died. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, fuck. Sure. I feel horrible now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's okay. a meaning, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, man, diverging there. That's incredible that you wrote that, that film score and like on the backseat there. That, so to me, that says like passion. You really wanted to do that then. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to have that experience of scoring a film. And I also wanted to just like get my foot into that world a little bit because I think like end game plan, like touring musician is not a sustainable thing. You know, like I just can't... Uh, tour in the way that I have been like I'm 32 right I can't do this shit when I'm like I'm not gonna be able to do this shit probably when I'm like 55 yeah so yeah. I'm gonna have to like figure something out like I, I want to slowly I think ease into doing something else and I mean all the um shows are really just I think a means to an end for me to some degree you know like just to get money really to to be able to buy myself time in the studio right uh and being mm. in the studio is really where i get my fulfillment like after a solid day's work where i've been really productive and i've like really got a piece of work that i'm like stoked about and like really excited to wake up the next day and open again and work on it's like that's the really yeah. like that fulfilling feeling is the whole reason i do this yeah and you don't get that from shows you get that from being in the studio yeah 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 that's cool no that's interesting yeah, it's interesting. So like um, like a lot of my stuff from the last couple of years has all been very obviously video game based, um, which is obviously studio based. There is opportunities to go out and record musicians and things like that, which is amazing. But a lot of it is, you know, time clicking at a screen. Um, but, you know, what's what's fascinating about that is that it also is kind of a means to an end. It's it's a way to kind of, you know, create a career out of uh, what, something that you want to do. Ultimately, it is at the end of the day, you are creating something for a, a business that is trying to sell a product, though. And I think this is the thing that uh, I don't want to go, like, it's not going to sound negative or anything, but I feel that like a lot of people make the misjudgment of like, you know what? I really have a lot of fun playing a video game, right? Like a video game playing an hour or two a week is like the highlight of my week. I get to sit on the couch and grab my controller and play a video game. This is amazing. Surely making video games must be the dream then, <laughs> right? And it's, um, it's, it's not like that. It's just, it's, it's another job, you know, it's, it's very demanding. It's a very technically demanding, um, it's very time pressure demanding, um, job in amongst all of those crazy set of circumstances, time, budget, schedules, producers, breathing down your neck, whatever, um, online abuse from fans, whatever it is, right. In amongst all of that, um, you've also got to create really good stuff, you know, like really good stuff that fits the game and really resonates well. And, 
Um, the thing that they love any, more than anything else is when their game score starts winning awards, right? They love that sort of stuff. And that's, that's, that's kind of what you need to be meeting. So it's a very much like 110% every single day. There's a lot of demands that come with it as well. And I'm sure you felt that even when you were doing the film stuff is like, that's why you were working in the backseat of the car there, right? Is that there's the pressure to do a really good job on it. You want to, you don't want to let the people down that you're working with. Right. And you want to do a good job. So like, you know, other people hear it and hopefully hire you again to do more work. Right. What, what is the thing that you like, uh, what, like what is your favorite sort of leisurely activity to do like outside of working on music and stuff? I just, I just work all day, man. I, I, that's it. I don't really, I don't really do like, for me, it's a really incredibly monastic type of lifestyle. It's, um, uh, lots of hours working and then, um, some physical exercise there. And then that's, that's kind of it. Like it's, it's a very, very simple, uh, sort of thing. I got to a point, I remember a couple of years ago where things were really getting kind of crazy. I had all these commitments going on and, um, all, all of these, you know, situations that are recurring and all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of pulling me in like a million directions. And I had to kind of make this decision where I'm like, you know, what's, what's the core values here? What's the important thing? Well, I enjoy doing this. This gives me pleasure and, and happiness. And this gives me pleasure and happiness. This I'm not too keen on this. I'm not too keen on whatever. You kind of cut all that, that stuff out. So for me, it is, um, lots of just, just working on things. I try to make the work itself as varied as I can. That's like kind of, that's why I have a bunch of different things, um, different, uh, tools and things to play with, I guess. Um, but that's it, man. I might take Saturday off. Uh, it's my early Sunday morning now. Um, I've got an album to produce for Sony. Um, and that's what I'm going to be working on for the rest of the day here. Uh, and I'll do that till I pass out maybe. Um, and then I'll wake up on Monday morning and do the whole thing again. That's kind of it. That's not really a leisure. Uh, crazy so. yeah yeah um, so um like for instance i really love playing chess online right. and i really love mountain biking it's yeah like sure. two things that i that i love to do yeah and uh and i almost feel like to some degree um the work that i do uh is almost like I'm just trying to buy myself guiltless hours to do those things, right? <laughs> it's like, um, like the way I almost measure success is like how many hours I can guiltlessly play chess for on a day or something. It's like if I can wow. just like guiltlessly play chess all day and know that I've like done enough work to like buy hours to do that, then like yeah. that's my, my sort of like measure of success. I think that's beautiful though. I think if you... Um... What you're describing to me there is is balance, really. You're you're wanting to put enough in one side to balance the other side, and so I think that's that's kind of beautiful there. Um, I know myself; I have a very obsessive um, personality. So if I was into playing chess, I'd be doing that all day, and everything else would fall by the wayside, and I'd be that crazy, hairy, homeless person on the street that just plays chess all day. Um, <laughs> just like uh, what do they call them? Like uh, the people in the park who um, like sharks or whatever, right? <laughs> be a chess shark <laughs> sure. yeah sure um no that's it man i mean um i like um i have this like um sort of disassociation disorder type of thing happening where um i don't really find pleasure or joy in things that i that a lot of other seem, people seem to find pleasure and joy into um i myself have to be the kind of upper levels of extremes to to kind of feel anything and um, it's something I've always had and I never really knew too much about it. And it wasn't until I kind of started working on it and started focusing on it that it's like, oh, hang on. I, I kind of engage in activities and things that not a lot of other people uh, want to do for um, to, to feel something or whatever. You know, if I'm just going about my daily day, I don't, there's, there's no feelings or anything there. I need to be 
uh, engaging in some stupid sort of risky, dangerous behavior or whatever to, to, to get to that point. And, um, it's interesting that you're bringing up mountain biking because I feel that's kind of like a similar sort of, sort of thing there. Like, is you know, risky behavior and things like that? You're doing it for the thrill and the adrenaline of the, you know, hitting each jump correctly or hitting each berm correctly or, um, you know, tweaking your bike and stuff like that. Like it's, it's, it's that sort of thing too, right? You're kind of obsessing into that sort of stuff. Um, and I think you, you, you pour, you pour credits into that because you want to get some sort of feeling out of it, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, mountain biking is like, it's a, like a bit about the thrill. I'm also like, uh, super just into like the bikes themselves. I think just technologically they've gotten to this really yeah. crazy point. It's like, they're just really amazing vehicles. And I also like, I was, um, I've always been like a big fan of being out in nature and like going hiking and stuff like that. And to me, mountain biking is just like advanced hiking. It's like, you know, you're very quickly just sending it through a forest. Yeah, and, man. Yeah. And especially in Northern California, I mean, it's so Oh yeah, some yeah. great spots there. Yeah, dude, absolutely. Yeah. So I do, you know, that if I am doing some sort of physical thing, that's, I'll be seeking out that sort of stuff, whether it's that or uh, hiking. I love crazy hiking and climbing and things like that. Um, yeah, physical sort of stuff. I find I need to do that because you know it as well as I do that the studio life could be very, um, very st- like sedentary. I guess you're not moving. So yeah, you sedentary and like very solitary as well. Like the solitary, yeah, precisely. It's yeah. like by yourself so, yeah. and sitting. <laughs> do you have yeah, a sit yeah. stand desk? Uh, I stand up to work. Yeah, I. Um, I remember coming back. I was sitting in a hotel in LA once, and I was like, you know, what? I've, I've got nothing to do. I'm waiting for a plane. I'm going to design my perfect setup. And I got a booklet out, and, I, and I, I drew how I want things to be. And I want my two screens. I want my rack gear in front of me. Um, I want my keyboard. I want my mouse. I want my you know uh, controllers and things here. I want my monitors over there, and I want it to be standing. And I kind of just drew all this sort of stuff down, and then went about building it with stuff that I could find. So I found a, a standing desk that I have, um, which which pops everything up. I have a series of rack gear that sits in front of me. It's important for me to have my rack gear in front of me, not in a rack off to the side somewhere. I've never, never understood makes... that shit, man. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't it's make like, any yeah, sense, right? Let me like get out of the stereo field to EQ something. It's like, <laughs> exactly. <all right. laughs> let me tweak that 5K. All right, I'll just yeah. roll my chair over here. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, oh, where'd the 5K go? And yeah, then you roll back and you're like, wait, it's back again. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, it's funny that because like I realized that a lot of top, top, top mixing engineers that have these amazing pieces of equipment have their pieces of gear and they have one setting and they send it to that. And that's that one setting. They don't change it. They don't change the attack and release times on the compressors. They don't touch the EQ curve. When they want that certain EQ sound, they send it to that bit of gear. That's kind of how they do that. That makes a lot more sense. Um, so no, I want sense. most Cause yeah. them, I mean, like, sh- shouldn't you EQ something based on the material going into it? Yeah, but I, I guess like if, if you're working in a pro studio, you know that you're going to probably EQ a kick drum a certain way. You're probably going to EQ a snare drum a certain way. You're probably uh, going to EQ. A they probably just have way. like so many pieces of rack here. They're just like that's the kick drum one. Yeah. Just send it to them. <laughs> it, well, you know, it's, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because um, I do know also that they do a lot of preliminary work in Pro Tools or whatever they're using before they get to that point. So before they spread it out on the desk, they're doing preliminary work in Pro Tools. So that's where you'll fix up resonances in the kick drum or the guitars or whatever it is that you're working on. So you've got everything at a pretty good stable level. And I would imagine, you know, if you're working in a pro-level studio, you're probably working with decent producers that are sending you stuff that it's a pretty consistent level anyway. So I know in Nashville, there is like two kick drums people use and there's two microphones they'll use on that kick drum. There's probably one snare mic they'll use. And so every time you get a double bass part that's recorded, it's going to be recorded in the same same way. So you know then you're going to be pretty uh, confident, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's almost like serum in the electronic music world or something. Yeah, yeah. OTT or something. (laughs) Going back to, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so I have, I have that stuff and I, I set it all up 
standing because um, yeah, I just enjoy the the standing desk thing. I have a laptop system, as I said. If I'm if I'm physically tired from the day and I, I still need to get some stuff done, I can just grab the laptop and go sit somewhere else, and I can you know tweak some things if I need to. But um, but that's kind of it. So yeah, I, I've, and I've had that set up for seven years now. So nice. yeah. Are you, so you've been in this house you're in now for seven years? No, I just moved into this place late last year. Um, hmm. I just uh, put a studio together um, that's uh, themed after a, a haunted Edwardian mansion. And, that's uh, awesome that you like think yeah. about the theme of the studio. Yeah. Um, you, feel, you feel like the vibe and stuff makes a big difference? Yes, I do anyway. Yeah, I yeah, think so. I mean, just looking at where you're sitting now, it looks a lot more vibey than where I'm sitting. It's like you got some <laughs> nice, like, bespoke-looking fucking chair and, like, yeah. you know, nice sense. Yeah, and... um, I don't know, man. It's just I had a – I'm still in the process of setting it up. I'm at <laughs> – very nerdily, I call this phase two. I've got phase three to come. Uh, phase two I needed to get to so I could still get some deadlines and things ticked over. Phase three is um, proper cable management. I've got tie lines that are in. I've just got to wire everything up. So – um, sitting behind me, um, I don't think you release videos for this sort of stuff, so I might have to describe. Uh, I think you're audio only, correct? For your podcast, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I release videos, uh, but only to the Patreon. Oh people. right, yeah, cool, cool, cool. So um, behind me, I have all my equipment and rack here. There's um, going to be uh, guitars hanging up in the middle section there. Um, I've got all my synths and stuff there, and each one of them is going to be wired through a tie line, which goes to the computer system, which is down the other end. And that's all going to go through this cool patch bay and uh, everything is going to be sort of set up in templates and things like that. So I can basically tweak and control synths and stuff from one end of the room and, and it's all working back here. Um, but yeah, it's all got pedals and crazy things back there. I've got like all these cool things I've got hanging up there. There's, uh, I don't know, little trinkets and things you pick up along the way. I don't know if you can see it in shot. There's a Kangling up there. Um, I had that for Spinal on uh, Spinal Theme. I recently used it in Doom as well. Do you know that? Do you know what that is? Okay, I'll grab it for you just a second. All right. <laughs> this is a Kangling. And uh, I so it got... Looks like, oh. I'll, I'll just describe what it looks like. It's a, it looks like a bone uh, slash a tomahawk slash... Uh, <laughs> it looks, yeah, it, and it's got like a little uh, voodoo doll hanging off the end of it with a rope. <laughs> so I might... Let people Google the word Kangling to find out what it is. But uh, I will say holding it is quite extraordinary because it is quite a grisly thing to have in the studio. Um, and this is a flute you would describe this as. It's a traditionally a Tibetan flute. What it's made out of is very unique, as you can probably tell by looking at it. Um, I originally got this for Spinal in Killer Instinct. Um, Spinal is a, uh, a pirate um, but he's a skeleton pirate, and that might give you some sort of indication as to what this is here. Um, and I recently used this on Doom as well because uh, I just thought that would be really cool in some of these like really ambient sections to have this uh, haunting, haunting instrument here. Um, I didn't want to put my mouth on it when I first got it, but um, but uh, uh, yeah, there it is. Um, so. Yeah, so that that was quite fun. So there's all sorts of like crazy little trinkets so you, and things all set up in the back. So you've there. still never put your mouth on it and played it? No, I still put me. Yeah, I've, I've put my mouth on it and played it a few times. Yeah. Could, could you play it for me? Um, I can try. Yes. I haven't. I don't know. Okay. We could try. There oh you are. man, that thing sounds as evil as it looks. So it's a <laughs> it's a bone, right? Yes, it's a bone. So um. Yeah. So I've called my studio because it's a um modeled after a, a haunted Edwardian mansion. 
and I have this in here. The studio is called the Manor Femur. Uh, it is a it is a femur bone uh, that flute. That's just been like hollowed out. Yeah, so it's it's hollowed out. That's kind of the um, the knee socket here. So your knee your kneecap sits there, and then your shin bone and things go that way. And that's kind of where your your hip socket where would your go. Hip would, yeah, yeah. Yep. So it's insane. Yes. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of um, these things that Richard Devine has. He has these like Aztec uh, death whistles. They're, they're like yeah, death whistles. Yeah. That's the one. So yeah, he, my, has, like, um, he said he my, has like thirty of them at this point. It's crazy. Yeah, he just collects them. My buddy um, Martin Stig Anderson, who I uh, had the great fortune to work with on Wolfenstein Two, um, he previously done uh, Limbo and Inside. Oh, dude, Limbo is so sick, isn't it? Ever. Um, yep. He has a skull. And he um, he has the skull wired up as a resonance device um, with contact microphones and uh, and exciters, and uh, he uh, for I think he got it for inside, but I don't want to tell his story. Uh, it's his story, but I remember him showing me photos and and things and such from it. And um, it was wonderful because we were having this discussion in Sweden uh, at Machine Games there, and Axel, who's the audio uh, art director, sorry on. Um, uh, on Wolfenstein too. He's an amazing artist. Um, Axel Tavinius, check out his stuff. It's incredible. Um, but he has a collection of skulls as well. It's quite grisly. Um, I don't know why am I telling you this? I don't know. It's just, uh, this, these are kind of the things <laughs> you collect along the way. It's interesting, man. Yeah. I mean, like what I'm starting to gather is it seems like to be, um, you know, one of these kind of like high level, uh, game or video sound designers, you just need a bunch of like strange instruments. I mean, you really, it's kind of like the equivalent of being an amazing hip hop producer and having to like dig through like record crates. Right. But instead to be like one of these amazing sound designers, you have to just dig through just the craziest instruments and like, you know, do stuff like finding old pieces of hardware and pedals and shit. And like, just like you really got to go off the deep end with searching to get to the new sounds, right? Otherwise, yeah. you're just going to be making the same serum patches. And Precisely. And I think that's that's kind of what you're doing here is that you're not doing it because of what it is. So, yes, of course, there's a story that goes with it. But, you, of course, you know that there's going to be a unique, interesting sound that's going to come from that thing, whatever it is. And it's going to be a sound that hopefully not a lot of people have heard. So it hasn't become a, a kind of cliche or anything like that. So I think that's why we kind of find these these tools. I'm getting really interested in sort of tapes at the moment and cassette tapes and cassette tape processing and things. I just got this wonderful little synthesizer that allows me to um, record a single note on a tape and then um, play that tape in a Walkman. And then the synth that I have uh, has like a bunch of keys on it. And each key, you can change the speed of the tape that's playing back through the Walkman. So it basically changes the voltage on it, I assume. Um, so what you're able to do there is record one note to a, a cassette tape, put it into this Walkman, and then play melodies on this thing, which is very much the same way that a Mellotron used to work, uh, that sort of thing. But anyway, the, the point that I'm telling you this is I know when I put that tape and that recording and things in there and I, I play a melody on it, it is going to come out that way once. And it's never going to come out that same way a second time. Which is different to us. If I load up a serum patch, it's going to sound exactly the same on my system as it sounds on your system. Uh, I'll be able to pull it up for as long as Steve supports it. Um, it's it's always going to be the same. And there's there's something wonderfully convenient about that. And serum is a wonderfully sounding uh, synth. But sometimes you just need something that's that's different and unique. Um, we talk a lot a bit about like sonic identifiers in games, and it's usually thrown around more as a sound designer's. Um, terminology as in something important happen, happens in the game and your your brain 
processes audio quicker than it processes visuals. Okay, so you hear a loud noise and your lizard brain kicks in and you, you shudder, you get a shake first before your visuals look at it to process what it actually was and then you determine whether it was worth getting scared over or not. So your brain processes sound quicker than it processes visuals. So in a video game, especially something like Doom, where you're whizzing about the level really, really quick, there's like a billion enemies coming after you, everybody's shooting at you, there's like a million things to, to focus on. The way that we relay information to the player of important things is by having sonic identifiers. And this is nothing new. This has been around in, in games since the beginning, really. Um, when you hear that sound, your brain starts to associate a certain set of actions with that sound. So that sound itself needs to be really distinctive. And if you think of any classic video game sounds, they're distinctive in a way, yeah, right? Like Metal Gear Solid when you see an enemy or whatever, and it's like that stinger. Yeah, brilliant that sound is. And mm -hmm. I think when you really get diving into video game stuff, you start to appreciate those sounds a lot more. You really appreciate the Super Mario Brothers jump sound. You really start to appreciate the Sonic the Hedgehog ring sound. You really start to appreciate that uh, Metal Gear Solid uh, alert sound because they're just, they're so efficient and brilliant and get to the point and then tell you what's going on at the same time. And mm. a buddy of mine, Jed, who was the audio director on Killer Instinct, he did a lot of study into this, and what he determined was that these sounds are distinctive because they're musical, right? Mm -hmm. So when that sound in Metal Gear Solid plays, it's a musical sound that plays. Yeah, it's, it's like not... a chord almost. It's like a ding. Precisely, yeah. The jump sound is just a rising, you know, wave. It's like form. the uh, the Netflix but um, as yeah, well. Yeah, you know, like sure. As soon as you hear yeah. that at the start. Yeah, it's like a fanfare, right? Um, right. The Sonic the Hedgehog thing is just like two, it's like a G and an A, I think it is, from memory, like playing together. These are musical sounds. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't know why I went into that big thing, but <laughs> it's good fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I'm really interested just on like, yeah, what, what, what are you having to say? Because, I mean, it's, it comes from a place of just like, uh, like a, a place of somebody who's had a lot of experience that a lot of people I've talked to have not, you know, I haven't talked to a lot of, game sound designers i oh, wait uh, i'm curious too um for doom did you uh do any of the sound design or is it just the composition no i didn't do any of the sound design i worked with the sound designers very very closely and when doing a game um it's important that you have a really good dialogue with the sound designers as well because of those important sonic identifiers you need to make sure that the thing that you're doing is not getting in the way of the thing that they're doing so um if they're making weapon sounds that are very tonal and you have like, you know, some crazy sine wave piece happening in the background, it's going to clash, right? And it's not going to stand out. So you need to know what they're doing and be aware of what they're doing to be able to um, react and, and make sure that your stuff slots in next to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Because I've always got to think about in the back of my head is the game's mix. Like I'm mixing the, the music itself, but I have to think right. about how that In the end, that's the just game. like a, yeah, that's like a stereo thing against like, a shitload of other stereo things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always day. stereo stuff that's as loud as everything else, right? It's always explosions and gunshots and screams and whatever it is next to double kick drums and guitars and etc. But one of the great things that I learned from Charles, Charles Dean, and I was talking about my mentor earlier, was that he said that if you want to, um, if you want things to stand out short, oh, how do I explain this? What we do, right? This is going to sound pretentious as hell, but just bear with me. But what we do is vibrate air molecules, right? We push air, 
That's what we do. We send signals to a speaker, which makes that speaker push back and forth and vibrates air. It pushes air. And there are certain physical limitations that come with that. One thing that's an obvious example is that a pure square wave is not possible because you cannot have a speaker forward and then instantly backwards. It's always going to have to travel through that time domain. That time domain is going to smear that a little bit, right? Getting super nerdy here, just bear with me. So um, if you are playing a sound that is static, right, as in that speaker just vibrates solidly on that one thing, and then something else happens in a video game such as, I don't know, like a gunshot that makes that speaker react. The sine wave basic waveform thing that you're playing in your music in the background, say some ambient piece, is going to get lost just in the energy transfer of that speaker, right? It's going to disappear. Mix-wise, your, your analytical meters might tell you that everything's fine. You might have found a nice little EQ pocket for it, whatever but it will get covered. It will get masked, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, so, also just like the psychoacoustic effect of like auditory masking as well. Absolutely. Right? And I know I'm like really just sort of talking around this in the most basic way, but just bear with me. So the way that you get your stuff to stand out then in a dense mix is by having short, straight to the point sounds for everything, right? So everything needs to be short and sharp and punchy. That's the point. Um, it's the same for a lot of film scores. A film score that is like with lots of flowing strings and lovely, you know, melodic, um, uh, whatever, woodwind lines, maybe a choir, in an action scene, you don't hear. It disappears into the background. But if you play a, a, a punchy, you know, hip-hop track over the top of it, all of a sudden it's up the front. You can hear it, but nothing's clashing. And it's because that hip-hop track says... Here is a kick drum to remind you that you're listening to hip-hop, right? All of a sudden, there's a gunshot explosion. That's to remind you that you're happening. Uh, it's in, in the middle of a battle. In between that, there's another kick drum that's occurred. And so over time, you get this that's happening in the mix. And the speaker physically likes that a lot more. It, it allows you to have a lot cleaner, um, punchier mix when you're doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, this reminds me a lot um, of like how uh, Skrillex does his mix downs. And it also reminds me a lot of like MIDI side chaining stuff, uh, which is like a technique I use a lot. And, and also like drum and bass production. Um, like, so for instance, this kind of like drum and bass production and like the heavy Skrillex production and, and all this kind of stuff. And they all use like MIDI side chaining. And basically like when the kick hits, like everything turns down and then it's like straight back up. And then when the snare hits, everything's completely quiet and then everything's completely back up. And basically you get, um, do you know what Hocket is? Uh, I'm not familiar. So Hocket, you, you would have done this, I guarantee it, is like where um, you have like one line, like a melody line, mm -hmm. and then you run it through like a bunch of different patches. Yeah. And then you take like one note from like each different sound gotcha. kind of to create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's called Hocket. And um, I feel like if you just do sort of Hocket, but with like every element in your tune. So it's just like, yeah. and it's like, it's just big blocks of like noise that are just like, essentially like just all compressed bricks. Um, you can, your perceived volume and is like extremely loud, but everything sounds like it has space and it's clean. It's like the ultimate trick in electronic music, really. Well, even that, but I think it's, um, I think that was inevitably even stumbled on with hip hop stuff with slicing breaks um, or, or drum and bass, the earlier drum and bass stuff with slicing breaks. If you had a drummer playing in a room and that drummer is playing a groove and you're compressing the shit out of that groove, all of a sudden every sound is starting to bleed into every other sound, right? Just inevitably, that's the way it works. But if you record just a, a bar of that and then whenever you need a kick drum, you just use the kick drum that it was at the start of the, the bar and then the snare and then whatever hi-hats and things in between that, you're only getting one sound at a time. You're not getting the crossover sort of yeah, bleed stuff. It becomes like way more controllable. Precisely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the thing. So if you really want your stuff to stand out in a, in a game mix or in anything, short, sharp, punchy sounds are going to get you a lot further. And that fights instincts a little bit because when you're making music on your own, it's really nice just to have ambient stuff. You're like, oh, man, this just sounds so good. I'm here in my controlled studio and I've got this like really subtle change of this one little frequency and this little bass thing. Oh, man, I'm just feeling stuff, right? Throw it into a game with characters screaming over the top of it, explosions, gunshots, whatever happening in the background, car chases. It's, it's gone. gone. <laughs> Sorry, it's disappeared. And it's just like eating up headroom. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, it gets, even just physically, it just gets pushed aside, yeah. So yeah, getting back to what you were saying, I'm always working with sound designers to make sure that we do things um, uh, that, are, that are kind of working together. Um, there's usually a couple of practical things that we'll do with that. One is that we define a priority system. So you can't go into your game thinking that everything is a priority. Like you can't approach a mix with like everything is a priority. Everything is just as important as everything else. It doesn't work that way. You need to pick the thing that you need to focus on, right? So in a video game, that's going to be, well, it depends on the video game, but with Doom, uh, the number one was the weapons. So it had to, so whenever a weapon plays, that is the most important thing. Do not get in the way of the weapons. Um, on the first Doom, uh, Chris, who was the audio director, made a, made a cool decision where he said music can be number two, right? So we have weapons and we have music, right? The third in Doom is uh, demons. So you know where the demons are coming from. The demons are screaming and et cetera and stuff. And they made that decision, which I was really quite thankful for because it allowed music to be pushed up a little bit more. But they made the decision to make music the number two priority in the mix there, which is really, really cool. Um, that did change on Doom Eternal, um, uh, where notifications and, and, and different sound effects and things became the priority. But anyway, the, the point of that story is that there is a priority system that's defined. Um, the second thing is that we, we have amazing tools now that allow us to mix stuff in real time while you're playing the game, right? So, oh, yeah. Is it like um, FMOD? Yeah, FMOD and Wise. Yeah, WYs. Oh, yeah. yeah. So do you uh, get into F model? Yes, uh, I did. Wise, W Wise is my thing. I've every oh, game gotcha. I've done for the last whatever has been <laughs> been done on W Wise. I haven't done a game on F mod since like Marvel games, which I was doing back maybe twelve years. So is, ago. is F mod like kind of outdated? No, I point? think it's I think it's just as cool now. It's just um, um, the teams that I've been working with have um, budgetary things that have said that we're going right. to work with Wise, and that's a decision that they made. It's not a budgetary thing; is in one's cheaper or more expensive. It's just that they. They made the decision and, to use that, so yeah. And can you explain kind of what Wise sure. does? <laughs> sure, man. So um, you and I do exactly the same things, right? We work with the same tools, the same plugins. Um, we, we come up with melodies. We make sure our kick drum sounds really cool. We use similar sort of bus processing stuff, whatever. Making music these days at a computer is identical, right? That's, that's the kind of point of what I'm trying to say here. It's going to be very similar. Where music for video games differs compared to any other thing, and which is completely unique to video games, is when we break that stuff apart to get it into the game, right? So when you're playing a game, there is a sophisticated set of tools that are playing the music in the background. It's not like the old days where it was just, hey, CD-ROM, play this WAV file. There's a really, really complicated set of things that are happening in the background. And so when you're working in video games, the knowledge of that stuff is as important as making the stuff in the first place. You can make the best music in the world, but if you don't know how to get it into the game and working correctly, um, it's wasted. So W-wise, we would describe it as audio middleware, which means it's something that sits in the background of the game um, that controls the playback behavior of every sound that the player hears. So all dialogue or sound effects or music are all being played sort by like w based, Like based on the player's input. 
based on wise goes like all right the player's doing this like i need to play this that's one example yeah um we work with the coding team and the design team to find out what pieces of input we want to get to wise so an input might be anything such as like the speed of the vehicle that you're driving or the amount of ammunition that you have left or the intensity of the boss battle or how much health you have left or anything, any input that we can get from the game can feed stuff into WIs and that controls the behavior. So um, the car engine speeds up and gets a little bit louder because you're driving faster in the car. The boss battle music switches to a whole new section that the player hasn't heard yet because they're running low on ammunition and health. Um, these sorts of things we can do. This is what you'd call logic, uh, not the audio software logic. This is game logic that's happening in the right, background. Right. Yeah, it's like X has happened and therefore Y is the result. X has happened and therefore Y. Um, yeah. So... That stuff, so we spend honestly half the amount of time getting that working correctly. So I'll produce the music here and we get it all out and it's it's finished and it's mastered and it's wonderful and everybody's happy with it. Then the job happens of actually getting it into the game and playing correctly. Um, and there's a lot of trial and error that happens with that because you need to make sure that it feels right. You need to make sure that it's hitting the right piece of music at the right time. You need to make sure that it's getting the information across to the player that they need to know about at the most appropriate time. Uh, this sort of stuff. Um, you could think about it rudimentally of basically we do have Ableton sitting in the background playing the track, right? So I can yeah, pull the guitars clips. up a little bit if I want at any point. I can mute the kick drum at any point if I oh, want Oh, wow. Well, so you you end up uh, not giving them a stereo wave at the end. You give them stems. It depends. Sometimes it's a stereo wave that is breaking into sections. So you might take a three-minute piece of music that you break into like 20-second segments, and then those like segments, chorus, et um, those segments themselves jumble around based on what's happening. So you could think of your song as like a verse and a chorus, right? And you're just playing the verse while you start the battle, and then when the battle gets really intense, the music kicks into the chorus, Right, So you can think about it like that, and that's just a stereo waveform. But you can um, also have 20 tracks of stems playing that bring in percussion at this section and bring in the strings at this bit and all that sort of thing as well. You can completely change the mix if you want to, if you want to do that. Um, the thing is there's no standard with this stuff. The tools are there. It's how you use the tools. Again, it's the techniques we were talking about before. So anything is possible. Um, the most exciting stuff that we have now is that WISE can send, so WISE, the same piece of software, the Ableton type thing that's running in the background, if you're still <laughs> you, with me. And you call it, uh, yeah, you call it the Ableton type thing just because it's kind of like this live controller that can like play clips and Precisely, and just think of it like gotcha. a door in the background. So yeah, you can yeah. change EQ on any track if you want, you can mute a track if you want, you can trigger a clip if you want. Like it, it's all just, imagine that happening in the background while you're actually playing. So literally you were sitting on the couch playing your game and in the background behind the game, is imagine something like Ableton where clips are triggering and EQ is changing and automation is happening. All this is happening in the background. Um, the most exciting stuff that we, we can do now is that that stuff that sits in the background can now send data to the game, right? So why is that cool? Well, it means that I can now put markers in my audio file and things can trigger in the game based on that marker so you can have your piece of music playing and then when the kick drum hits, that's when the battle starts. I can have things like a envelope follower that might be following uh, a sound effect in the game. Say the uh, I might have thunder and lightning in the background, right? I might have thunder and lightning sound effects happening. 
and I have an envelope follower that's following the amplitude of that thunder and lightning sound effect, and that is feeding the intensity of the visuals of the thunder and lightning in the level that I'm playing. It's all being fed from sound. There's not an animator that's animated it. The sound itself is animating it in real time. <coughs> Excuse me, dude. So yeah, that sort of stuff is incredible. What we can do with that stuff is amazing. So how much are you thinking about this wise thing like when you're making your uh, music for Doom? Is that something that's kind of pretty heavily in the back of your mind? Yeah, I've been working with WYSE for a long time and, and I knew with Doom that, um, just to use that as an example, that Doom itself would follow a pretty predictable framework, right? So the player enters a room, demons appear, the, the player proceeds to fight those demons, they run out of ammo, they, they get killed, they beetle the demon, the demons, whatever. Um, they finish that section, then they need to move into another section with some platforming before it happens again. That was kind of like the repeatable framework. And so once you have a framework, you can write to that framework. Imagine that if you're scoring a film, you already have like this, the, the action sequence, right? And you can kind of linearly, linearly, I don't know if that's a word, but linear, write it in a linear ma manner uh, from A to B. So I knew with Doom that each battle was going to kind of follow a similar framework. So I could kind of write music around that. But yes, WYs and knowing that it's going to have to play back in a game is always a consideration from the beginning. Um, the cool thing about this is that anybody for free can download WYs and have a play with it. So you can literally download it and play with the same tools that we use when we're doing a Doom game, a Wolfenstein game, Killer Instinct, whatever. Um, you can download it from free. Just do a Google search for WYs. That's a W-W-I-S-E. And you can pull down the exact same uh, software that we use to make the games with and play around with it. There's tutorials on YouTube that you can look at to figure out how this stuff works. If you want to get that knowledge under your belt in the hopes of sort of getting into the game industry, you can do it that way. Mm, yeah, I tell a lot of people out these days, they're like, man, how do you like get to get to this spot and i'm like fucking youtube man <laughs> you can get a degree on youtube these days it's crazy sure like literally anything you want to learn is like learnable now on, yeah. on youtube it's crazy I'm i still think though information is kind of what you pay for it worth what you pay for it in a way you know what i mean well, I feel like if you pay for it, you're much more uh, likely to put the effort. In. Like, you know, if you spend like 500 bucks on a plugin, you're much more likely to learn how that works than if you download a plugin for free or something sure, like that. Sure, sure. So that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely that. But the amount of like, like anybody with a webcam and, and whatever can make a YouTube video and the amount of like dodgy audio advice I've seen given out on YouTube is fact with like, you know, 100,000 views or whatever. And I'm like, oh man, just shaking my head going. <laughs> That's not how you use a compressor um, or whatever. Um, mm. So, but I think if, you know, if you subscribe to something or if you find a producer that you really like and you hit the Patreon or something like that, like it, the information is worth what you're getting, you know, it's worth what you're paying for. If you're paying nothing for it, that's kind of, uh, you know. I mean, Junkie XL has like a ton of videos on his YouTube channel that are free to watch, and I That's think true. they're pretty. Yeah, he's he's a great impressive. outlier in that whole thing. I'd actually say, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, his stuff's great, absolutely for sure. Yeah, and like you know, like you were saying before, like AU fives tutorials, they're free. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's sort of thinking of really crazy. There, shit are, there is there is lots of amazing ones out there, but some pretty sketchy, dodgy ones at the same time. That's a good point. Yeah, I think like. Uh, if, yeah, and it's always tough, I guess, if you're sort of on the amateur side to know when to know that something is bullshit and like yeah. something is actually good information. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, hey man, I should uh, not keep you for any longer. We've, I've, I could just ask you questions all day because I find this shit so interesting. But we've, I mean, we've been chatting for two and a half hours. And oh I'm my god, I didn't know that. Well, maybe we could do another one in the future sometime. More that's like technical focus on the video game stuff. Dude, yeah, I would love to do that. Um, well, man, yeah, I appreciate you so much, like giving me the time and like coming on here and doing this. And uh, yeah, man, like it, definitely, I'd love to do this again. Yeah, of course. No, no, honestly, that thanks goes straight back to you. I've been such a big fan of all your stuff for a long time. I'm so glad to see you finally doing some more podcasts and speaking to some amazing people. Going back through your back catalog, there's so many awesome people to chat to so and listen to and all that sort of stuff. So thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat. Really appreciate it. Shit. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> all right. Have a good one. All right, dude. Cheers, hey. I'll see you sometime. I'll send you the audio files. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks for everything. Perfect, man. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, buddy. Cheers, mate. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I'm a